right, that said, let's turn to the next panel. And uh, we will uh, begin by just having everyone introduce themselves and give some sense of how the job you're doing right now connects to our topic of fan culture. What, what is it about fan culture that you're, you're engaged with on a regular basis? And Diane, we'll start on that end and go. Okay. Um, good morning. Is my microphone working? Everyone, no? No. Do I need to turn it on? Oh, there we go. It's coming. I hear myself. Um, I'm Diane Nelson. I'm really happy to be here. I'm from Warner Brothers. I am currently the president of Warner Premiere, which is our new uh, direct-to-DVD and digital content production company. Um, I've been in that role about nine weeks. I think the real reason I'm here is that in addition to that, and over the course of the last six years, I've managed the Harry Potter franchise for the company um, in collaboration with all of my colleagues in the various business units. Um, and also, uh, when I began, Harry Potter took on a similar role with The Matrix and then eventually started up a division called Global Brand Management where we tried to apply the same model of uh, cross-company management of our priority brands um, across the company for things like Batman, Superman, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and so forth in collaboration with my colleague Paul Levitz from DC Comics as well. So um, I, the Harry Potter piece, I imagine, is the reason I was invited to join this fascinating um, symposium. And it's really, I've learned much more than I will be able to impart to all of you, but it's been great, so thank you. I'm Molly Chase, I'm, hello. Oh, great. Hi, I'm Molly Chase, I'm uh, with Cartoon Network. I'm executive producer of the new media department. Um, so within that, our flagship, of course, is cartoonnetwork.com. Uh, we also have a version of our site um, for Hispanic US audience. Um, as well as we've recently launched two broadband networks. Um, probably the more significant one for the talk today is Toonami Jetstream, which brings um, anime never, never before seen in the U.S., uh, as far as we know, um, to um, a U.S. audience and uh, provides full-length episodes. Um, the thing that I just wanted to preface with is that Cartoon Network employees are also fans of the media that we produce and promote. Um, it's not an abstract, separate thing. Most people were fans before they joined the company and will be fans going on into their lives. So um, I think that may be a little bit different than maybe some of the other um, broadcasts or other kind of opportunities that are out there. Uh, let's see, is it working? So we're gonna go through each of us doing these tests. Um, my name is Dana Boyd and I, am, I have multiple hats. I'm a PhD student at uh, the School of Information at Berkeley. I'm a fellow at U USC Annenberg Center for Communications and I'm a social media researcher for Yahoo. Um, and probably why I'm here and most relevant in this conversation is that um, since the uh, emergence of Friendster in late 2002, I've been doing full-on ethnography of the social network sites, most recently um, of MySpace, and following the um, sort of consumptive and productive practices of different populations through the sites, both in the US and globally, um, and looking at the kinds of fan behaviors that you know, disrupted uh, an early stage um, dating site, supposedly, um, and the kind of teen practices that have uh, shocked many parents um, with the latest incarnation of MySpace. So a relationship also uh, within MySpace of looking at the bands and fans symbiotic relationships. So I guess for me, it's like looking at the way in which there's a sort of collective processes happening with different populations and the way that outsiders get to see this because of the popularity of this phenomenon um, and the visibility of this in the way that it complicates these practices. Very good. Mm -hmm. So I had an interesting experience recently of, uh, I, I 
like many people, I, I do blog searches for myself to see what people are writing about me. And a couple of days ago, uh, someone had uh, someone apparently was studying textual poachers, my book in a um, communications class, and they put up a blog post about it in which they said, well, first they're normal viewers, and those are people who watch television. Then there are fans, and those are people who are moved enough by watching television to go out and buy stuff. Mm -hmm. And then there are fanatics, who are people who get their social identity from their investment in television. And clearly something's wrong with you if you get your social identity from engaging and watching television. And I was curious what this person was. First of all, it's fascinating to have the experience of being misread by your fans, <laughs> uh, something I've written about rather a lot. And uh, we could maybe say they appropriated my language, but it wasn't exactly what my article had argued. Uh, and then I looked on the side, and she said, on you know, her list of interests, she said, I love shopping. And so I, I, I guess I wanted to use that to open up this question of how are we defining fans, and how are we making, what distinctions are we making between different kinds of activities or behaviors or identities that people may have as fans and the kind of products that you guys are, are studying? I'd love to start with that one, actually, because it's, um, it's a really interesting, you know, as I think about everything I heard yesterday and what we're going to talk about today, it strikes me, and I'm stating the painfully obvious here, but that, that as new as uh, everything that's going on in media and technology is right now, it's all very much the same. Uh, um, the underlying themes are that of understanding your consumer, understanding people, their motivations, and respecting them. Respect is the single biggest word I would use in relation to fans or any consumer. And I think that the, as part of that, it means not taking for granted the distinctions between the various aspects on the spectrum of, of a fan. So for us, again, using Harry Potter as an example, um, there, I, if there were a single definition that I think would um, comprise all fans, it would be there is a connection between an individual and a property that is so strong that they feel a sense of ownership. Now, how deeply that sense of ownership shows itself is a very wide spectrum. It can be fanatical in that there's an identity realized and that's where you start moving into fan fiction and, and even slash fiction, and, but that's a very real expression that we can't ignore. Or on the, the other end of the spectrum, it's just pure enthusiasm for the property that takes its form in the most basic commercial expressions that a media company might choose to put out there. So I think it's important to not overgeneralize about what a fan or any consumer is what motivates them and to take the time, particularly as a media company, to understand who they are and what's driving them, particularly if you want to be speaking to them with any relevance and authenticity. Any others want to jump in on that? Sure. I mean, I think uh, respect is a, is a running theme um, throughout this event, and I think it's absolutely true that the more respectful you are of your fans and also of the product that you're creating, that you're not slapping together something and putting it out there. It's disrespectful both to what you're producing and to the, and to the audience that will consume it. You know, I think because we focus so much on um, a kid's market of kids who are 6 to 11 or maybe 9 to 14, um, I think we have sort of a special responsibility and also create a range of ways to experience a, um, a particular um, show that kind of foots up to that, that if you just want to spend five minutes playing a Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends game, we have that available. If you want to get really immersed and play a year-long game um, that expands over time, we make that available as well. Um, but for um, 
but for us, you know, I think that my favorite experience this summer was I'm um, speaking at Anime Expo uh, about Toonami Jetstream, and fans came up afterwards and said, now, I speak Japanese. I taught myself Japanese so that I could, you know, understand the show, but not everybody gets to do that, so what are you doing to reach out to those fans? And um, that was such a picture for me of the lengths to which people will go to consume their favorite media, and, um, and very respectful of that, and, and very... Um, impressed by that. So for me, when I, you know, taking off actually your idea of ownership, one of the important things for me is the notion of agency and the feeling that rather than just being given something, you know, as that you have to take in whole, you have the agency to mix it up, to play with it, to take it apart and make it part of your own identity. And not just in terms of like what you're saying in terms of challenging um, that idea of that agency, but like why do we go out and shop and you know, play with brands and mix and match and you know, come up with clothing that's, that expresses ourselves? We do this because we feel as though all of this world around us, this big milieu of um, cultural artifacts, that we, if we take parts of it, we can actually make sense of it and project something out and give the impression about who we are to other people. And one of the cool things that you see with um, you know, a lot of this digital embodiment or these attempts to make digital bodies, um, for example, the notion of profiles, is an attempt to take all of the kind of cultural artifacts that you see as a part of your life, put them in some digital form so that you can actually use it as a way to sort of share something about who you are. You have this feeling of empowerment that this material doesn't just have to be something that affects you, but that you can, you can use to show others something about yourself. And this becomes a really interesting thing when you start to see what people take on um, as fans. You start to see what they take on and they're willing to appropriate and put out um, to express themselves and the reactions that people have um, to that. Because, you know, what, if you go into a teenager's bedroom, I love it. It's, they're filled with, you know, celebrity posters and information, content, really glittery stuff. Guess what? Same thing goes on online, right? Like, it's this ton of information and this material that they find says something about them and marks them in relation to other people. And that's where there's this interesting thing about being a fan is just a moment of, of your own participation, but it's when you project it out to other people that you can locate yourself within a social collective that becomes a really empowering position. So let's, let's build on the social connect collective idea for a minute. Uh, I, I said in my opening remarks yesterday that I see the discourse about Web 2.0 as being fandom without the stigma. That is, it's, it's all of the language that people have used to talk about user-generated content, viral marketing, passion-driven consumption, uh, culture, architecture participation. These are words that we could have used to describe fan culture mm -hmm. 20 years ago. So I'm wondering what, you know, let's think about the change that's going on. In what way does that discourse give companies a better way of understanding who their fans are and what they're doing and why it's valuable to them? And to what degree has fandom paved the way for some of the stuff that we're talking about as Web 2.0 or you know social networking. Do you mind if I give a little bit of history? To sure. You? So I want to, for those who aren't familiar with sort of how the trajectory of the social network sites came to be, and I think that it starts to get at a lot of these questions. When Friendster was launched, it was replicating something from way back in the day called Six Degrees, and they launched it to give purpose to social network sites. And it was the guy who created it. Frankly, he needed a date, and he really wanted help finding one. And Friendster was launched as a way for him to find a, make a better dating site. And the idea was that your friends could actually recommend who you would get to know. Well, there were three populations who were early adopters of Friendster and are early adopters of a lot of the social practices online. Geeks, freaks, and queers. Right? For the geeks, it was the, it was the bloggers, it was the technorati who frankly didn't have jobs because of the tech crash and had way too much time on their hand. 
The freaks, it was by and large people who attended Burning Man Festival, living in San Francisco, part of urban tribe culture. Um, people who uh, really were participating in music scenes were very much active in a lot of San Francisco life. Again, didn't have jobs because it was that time in San Francisco. And queers, mostly gay men, actually mostly living in New York. So these three populations got on to Friendster and did exactly the opposite of everything the site was designed and supposed to be about. And they went and they started playing with it and they started manipulating it. They started doing things that they thought would actually help them have fun and socialize and, and just have a great time. But the way that their participation came in is that they came in with those very narrow subgroups um, and then it hit the Village Voice in June of 2003. And that actually started spreading it out to the, the wider variety of, of urban 20, 30-somethings, hipster culture. Um, in that spread to there, there, there was this um, sort of way of participating that was kind of dating in the way that when you show up to a club and you're like, yeah, I'm here to see the music, when in reality you want to go home with somebody. Mm -hmm. like, it was the same kind of behavior. People were having fun. They were goofing around. And it was in about, by about you know, June of 2003, at the same time that, that that article hit, was when bands realized that the social network sites could be completely appropriated. And they used Friendster in the first days to reach out to their fans, to reach out to the people who attended their events. And they started creating profiles on Friendster, indie rock bands living in San Francisco. And Friendster flipped out and were like, you, you are not dating. You are not using the site for what we want you to do, and we, we will make you behave. So they started actually killing off people who were misbehaving. There was a whole phenomenon called fakesters, which were these fake profiles of people having a field day, making characters like salt and pepper that would sit there and write messages back and forth to one another for hours for everybody to read. Right? A treasure trove of just fantastic imagery and goofiness further helping those who um, were without jobs uh, procrastinate throughout the tech crash. And when they were killing off the bands, the bands were like, dude, this is actually useful. What are you thinking? Why are you doing this? And they got really resentful. And they had been telling everybody to join Friendster at their shows in San Francisco and New York and Los Angeles. And then they were, like, they were starting to make fun of Friendster by the summer of 2003 when a small little site called MySpace launched. MySpace also attracted three early populations. Koreans living in Koreatown, who had actually spread through and gotten removed from the Friendster phenomenon for various reasons, Hawaiians, and a group of hipsters in Silver Lake region of Los Angeles. And this was the indie rock scene in LA, very connected to the San Francisco one. And the San Francisco bands told these Los Angeles bands that these sites are really kind of useful if you can convince the site users to let you be. And so the, they created their profiles on MySpace, these indie rock bands living in Los Angeles. And rather than flipping out, MySpace, particularly Tom Anderson, one of the site's creators, went in and said, how can I help you? What would make your lives easier if we wanted to actually support bands? And they were like, whoa, wait. Help us connect to our fans. Our fans really want our music. Our fans want to know about our gigs. Our fans want to know, like, how, you can, how they can reach out to us. We want to be able to see who these people are. Can you help us do that? And they were like, yeah, sure, no problem, right? And thus began the fan emergence of MySpace and, the, and the, the music emergence of MySpace, which was really interesting because the thing about music scenes, um, particularly like something like an indie rock scene, it has two key populations, right? It has those who are old enough to drink alcohol or, or get fake IDs that can go out to the shows, and it has in many ways the people who are listening and, and creating identities based on this, uh, their consumption of these subcultures, which are the younger populations. 
to these two populations early competing. And that's the origin of these social network sites. So to get back to you know, where Henry's getting at with um, sort of making it mainstream, part of it had to do with the virality of it. It's the fact that you know, even if, if you have that one friend right, who's obsessed with something and you're not as obsessed with it, but they're like, oh, come on, it'll be fun. Just come to the show with me. Right? You go to the show and you get something different out of it. And what happened is that those network effects. So the, if you look, for example, at the teenagers, it was the, the really hardcore indie rock kids who first got on MySpace. And then they came and said, hey, you know, there's this site called MySpace. It's kind of cool. You can you know, make profiles and like, send messages back and forth to one another. You should check it out. And they sent their friends invites. And so their friends came on without that necessarily obsessive fan, music fan-driven you know, narrative built in, but actually realized that there was all of these other things that they could do. And they could find conversations around different things, or they could just hang out with their friends. And that's where music for MySpace served as a cultural glue, because even the people who would not necessarily think of themselves as fans could participate in a different way. And they made a wide variety of opportunities for participation. And I think if you look at Web 2.0, one of the things that's been so phenomenal about it is that the most active, engaged fans can participate in the same spaces as those who are not necessarily wanting to have that kind of participation because they want to come just to hang out with their friends. And if their friends are there because they're fans, that's great. But if they can all be there together, that's even better. OK. Do some of the others want to talk about the relation of fandoms to social networks? Well, I mean, I think it's very interesting about how fans use technology in a way that you wouldn't necessarily anticipate. Um, you know, when we, we had an a online community for kids that started uh, around 2000 in Orbit, which you're probably not familiar with, it's basically a digital trading card community. And we introduced in 2003 um, a multiplayer game that was basically a, a digital trading card game, and we worked very hard to make sure that you, as the player, could find a very specific person. You could either find a person based on rank because you wanted to beat them and you know, raise your profile. And you know, we literally listed every player. So it was you know, hundreds of thousands of players. And you could find exactly where you were. We had all of the systems in place to find an exact player. Uh, we launched it. We were feeling very good about it. It's a great, fun game. And it launched, and it did OK, but it wasn't what we expected. And we're like, something's wrong. You know, your spidey sense is going crazy. Like, there's, this is not the reception that we expected. We're missing something huge. And so we kind of got together, teamed together. Like, what are we missing? And we're like, you know, maybe they don't care who they're playing against. Maybe they just want to get in the game right now. And so within a day, we introduced an instant match button, made it big <laughs> on the page, and our usage went up, you know, 20-fold. And you know, our best intention of trying to connect people with individuals that they already knew really wasn't necessary. And in retrospect, there are a couple things that probably should have occurred to us that didn't until later. Um, one is that kids already have a lot of mechanisms for finding their friends and finding out whether their friends are online. For example, the telephone. Uh, I am. You know, there's plenty of opportunities there. Um, and also that real life behavior also exist online. So you, when you see kids get together um, at school or on a playground or at the mall, you know, they very rarely walk up to one another and say, hi, my name is Molly. I play soccer. I'm really, you know, I like juice boxes. Uh, do you want to, <laughs> would you like to go play a game? It's, you know, they just, you want to play? 
you know, yes or no, just come and join in or not. And I think that was, that was a really powerful thing for us. Um, so it's, it's true. So, you know, now when we go out with products, we very often will create a prototype, we'll show it to kids in advance, see how they actually use it or what features they really want, and try to build in that direction, knowing that once we put something out there, it's going to take on a life of its own, and there are going to be some unanticipated, really exciting developments, and we just need to encourage that. I think that the only other thing I'd add is how kind of amazingly both examples or both discussions reinforce the notion again that you know if, we, if 10 or 15 years ago people are talking about how isolating the internet might be when in fact all of our social tendencies are to seek out other people and mm -hmm. that very behavior is happening exactly as one would have expected if we actually thought about it, whether it's a, the kind of viral building that Dana's discussing, and that can be mirrored offline as well when you look at the way bands build their fan bases in clubs and so forth, and similarly the behavior that, that Molly's describing as far as how kids interact and what they seek out. It's just so fundamental, and I think that the more that we can step back and not overthink what are people, how are people going to be engaging within this space in a way that's unique to the space. I think the, the real thing to take in, into account was discussed again several times yesterday was this notion of control, that they are going to, and what Joshua said just a few minutes ago, that, that, that idea that they're going to modify and tailor the technology to suit their needs. It's the difference we at Warner Brothers a week ago had a um, gentleman speaking from Stanford, who reminded us about the, the societal evolution of us from a manufacturing um, uh, society to that of a consumer-driven society, that's exactly what we're looking at here, which is you, you, there's no longer an opportunity to push product, content, or technology out onto people and expect them to accept it in that form. That's a beautiful thing, but it's a very complex and slippery slope, so. Can I? No, please. There's one other big structural thing that I think is really important to point out that, that's happened as we went from Web 1.0 to Web 2.0, which we won't discuss the complications of those terms. But the earliest waves of net culture were really deeply embedded in the idea that you went to an interest-group-driven interest space. You were said, oh, there's this Usenet group on underwater basket weaving. All those in favor of underwater basket weaving, go there. Right? And this was, this was really great, and you could form all these ad hoc Problem with wearing multiple layers. I'm like, I'm from LA and it's cold here, so now I have too many layers to attach myself to. Am I on? Yeah, you're on. Okay. Um, the interest group driven structures were really great because they allowed people to come together of a particular um, topical interest or otherwise collected and bounded space. What happened, though, is that most of our social lives actually have these really funny networks, right? You have a group of friends, and their friends are not necessarily the same bounded group as the others. And one of the problems is that you had to create these separate groups for each one of those collectives, right? You had to make a mailing list for like your friends, and then they had to do one for their friends, and it got really, really complicated. The neat thing about what happened with, uh, with these social network sites and the way that social network structures are being built into tons of other sites, right? Like Flickr is a good example of that, is that they simultaneously support groups. So all in favor of underwater basket weaving come together and all in favor of me, 
can come circle around me, right? So you have these two different movements of like very ego-centered social network structures and topical interest group structures. And that they're starting to actually exist in a really comfortable way together um, online. And this is powerful because this is what we normally operate in and we normally move quickly between that, right? Like, Really, a lot of egocentric, like, you know, show up to my party, show up to my event, me, 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 mixed with, like, all of those in favor of the future of entertainment show up to this, this place in this time. Um, this this uh, element is actually allowed, you know, like, when you think about what traditional fandom is about, it's about an interest group, right? It's about the idea of people coming together around one topic. But people who don't necessarily have so, such deep engagement with that wouldn't necessarily think to go there, right? And that's where it gets really uncomfortable because it's like, oh, I don't want to go hang out with people that are like that much more interested. But when you, so, you start to hang out with your friends and like somebody brings up Harry Potter right on their bulletin on MySpace and all of a sudden you're allowed to have a conversation because you know, you're in a trusted space of friends and you don't even think about the fan, fact that you're participating in fan culture per se because it didn't come back to the group-centered mentality first. Okay. So Many people are observing that we're seeing a, a shifting relationship between media producers and consumers. That, that you know, that, and it's sort of traced. Walk through that. I think we have to go back to a moment where producers were distrustful of fans and what what those anxieties started with. And maybe we can walk forward to what the current relationship between media producers and fans fans look like. Sure. Uh, yes, it's a it's a great question, and I think. Again, it's all about control. Um, we talked about it yesterday at some length. And um, the, I think it's just impossible in any relationship, individual or collective, to um, demonstrate respect and ultimately trust, which is the, the operative word um, in a fan or consumer and, and media company relationship. It's impossible to have that without a dialogue. So. Uh, but of course, as was illustrated yesterday, the problem with a dialogue is that you might not like what the other person is saying to you. And when you're in the business of creating content that uh, is best case complex and needs to be the vision of one very focused person or several very focused people, and at worst is also coupled with kind of financial um, uh, goals and, and responsibilities, then you have one side of the uh, equation that's not particularly interested in hearing what the other side has to say because it's just going to make life more difficult. Um, and uh, you know, I don't know that there is a, a perfect answer to um, how I, I'm fascinated by the discussion that went on yesterday about user-generated content and the the um, the suggestion, or at least the inference, that somehow user-generated content and professionally created content are mutually exclusive. Um, when there, are, there is still lots of room in the world, I believe, for artists. Um, I, I, it's why I'm in this business. I, I'm hard-pressed to suggest to anyone that there will ever be someone like Joe Rowling again. Uh, we should all be so lucky. That's art, and thank God that her work bubbled up the way it did in a very organic way. Um, and her vision or that of any number of the artists that we work with at Warner Brothers sometimes needs to be allowed to be as focused and sort of committed to 
the vision that that individual artist has as possible. And they may not want the input, and now I'm talking about the creator, the original creator, not necessarily the intermediary of the media company. Um, but they may not want the dialogue, at least not in the process of creating. What I think is um, incumbent upon the media companies is to recognize that at the point in time that that content is created, at least in its original form, and then taken out to the masses, when the, when the consumers begin to engage and feel this sense of ownership, you, you can't nor do you want to turn that off. If you do, you're really short-sighted. It, again, it makes it very difficult then to deal with it. What if, and the easiest example to discuss, I think here, is the notion of, of slash fiction in Harry Potter. What do you do if you have a property that appeals to every age? but is primarily driven by children. How, how, where's the responsibility, not only with the media company, but with the creator who, who knows that her, her primary audience is children, or at least a meaningful part of her audience is children, and is it, is it okay to allow those children to inadvertently wander into areas that are expressions of another form of fandom? Uh, it, it, it's not an easy answer, and I think that Warner Brothers has learned uh, the hard way, but really learned in the last six or seven years by virtue of Potter, because it's so unusual in how broad the, the consumer base is and the fan base is, that, um, that you, ha you can't simply make it black and white and say we're going to shut down the unappealing aspect of it because every bit of expression, every bit of ownership of the property is a good thing that will continue the cultural phenomenon that is Harry Potter. What that means, though, is that you have to be prepared to say, we're not going to condone it. We're not just, you know, it's not a wink and a we're not going to look at it and we all know it's happening. It's, it's much more, um, I think, disciplined than that. It is, we're not going to tell you you can't do it, but that we definitely have a responsibility, we Warner Brothers, um, and at the request of Joe Rowling, to be very, very careful to not, um, to not condone it in a way that might uh, create the perception that it's official or that it's linked in with what either she has created and is orchestrating or what we're doing because we have to serve the broadest audience. Um, so there are many, many properties that we're fortunate enough to deal with at Warner Brothers where the challenge is not necessarily so great. If you're talking about the Wachowski brothers and the Matrix, um, it, it's understood to a certain extent what their sensibility is. Their audience is likely to be, well, it's a huge audience, their sensibility and their um, age and their demographics and their psychographics and all that are more likely to be consistent and, and more easily manageable. But something like Potter or some of the DC properties, it becomes a really interesting challenge. And, I feel like I've gotten a little tangential here, other than to say, again, it, it goes back to that respect issue. If you, if, if you are fortunate enough to have a property that connects that way with a consumer, you absolutely must not try to shut off that consumer's engagement in the property. But it's not as simple at the same time as just leaving it wide open and kind of everyone, you know, the sort of anarchical, fully democratic, everyone's in one big pot, have fun. It, it just doesn't, it can't work that way for a media company. And I would say, um, especially working with the children's property, uh, some of the spit uh, that we were talking about earlier uh, becomes extremely problematic. You know, we'll get an email from a parent saying, uh, I can't believe you've published such an inappropriate site. I'm like, well, goodness, I, it's games. And okay, wait a minute, which, which site are you talking about? And we'll go to a URL that's very similar to cartoonnetwork.com or cartoonnetworkvideo.com. And someone has, 
taken time and energy. They're clearly fans of, um, for, you know, of our content, but they decided to put it in a context of pretty much soft porn. Uh, maybe not even soft porn, just animated porn. And they've given it a name like cartoon video. Um, so that's difficult. You know, that is something that's like, you know, you appreciate the artistic expression and everything, but there's a difference between uh, fans and opportunism. Um, and that's the sort of thing where you do definitely send out the cease and desist letters and, you know, and so on. So within that context, it can be very difficult. And, and that was kind of a, a very easy one to make the call on, but there are some ambiguities along the way where you just have to, with thought and care, think about how you're going to respond. Well, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt Dana, but Molly brought up another word that's really important, which is opportunism, mm -hmm. which to me connotes a sense of um, commercial or financial exploitation, right. which shifts things to a whole nother level mm -hmm. because it's one thing to have creative expression from all different levels of fans on the spectrum. It's another when they are intentionally trying to make money off of that property, not just for IP reasons, but again, from the standpoint of what is, what is the goal? Is this fan expression or is this actually something that's exploitive and how do you define exploitive and then what is the responsibility of the rights holder in policing that? It, we, we try to walk that line all the time at Warner Brothers where we've got wonderful fan sites out there who are looking for opportunities to make a, just enough money that they can maintain their servers and stay in business. How do we, we support that? Sometimes we've actually, you know, we'll give them t-shirts or something. We, we have to be really careful because there's a precedential problem. If all of a sudden one site finds out that we're doing one thing for them, then everyone expects it, and that's, that's as they should. So we have to be careful to not do something for someone we're not prepared to uh, do for everyone else. We're also, we have to be very careful about monitoring what their activities are. Is it just sustaining what is really a fan site, or have they crossed over into actually trying to make profit off of it, and then you move into legal, if not just pure fairness issues, which is such a trite word. That's the question of who is, who is actually trying to gain, and what are they trying to gain by each move to control? So for example, for me, if you look at what happened in the earliest days of Friendster, because they were determined, absolutely determined that this would be a dating site, and that any behavior that sort of moved away from the dating idea should be stopped and killed, they killed off some of the most active and happy and enjoyable creatures, right? The people that were having a field day, the people that invited hundreds of their friends. And so if you think about it at a network structure, you have you know, these core hubs and all of their friends, and they were going around killing off the hubs, right? And the hubs were like, what are you thinking? What are you doing? And the question is, you know, was their behavior problematic? Okay, you kill off porn, meh. And you know, but when you're starting to kill off any, you know, any attempt to create a personality for Ali G because you have some deep appreciation for what he's doing in comedy, right? then you're starting to kill off the, f the fun that people are having and you have a network effect to it. And that's where there's, there's interesting decisions in social network sites about what, do you, what kind of behaviors do you kill and when. For example, MySpace kills profiles every day. But the kinds of profiles they kill or the people that they kill are not actually those hubs. right? They're the people that are engaged in hate speech. Guess what? Hate speech, not okay. Uh, you know, and the, as far as the site's concerned, never going to be okay. Um, if you're going to actually have a lot of na Nazi paraphernalia and conversations and go around um, finding anybody who, who's uh, a person of color and attacking every one of their profiles, never going to be okay. So they kill off these people, but the reality is, is that they're not actually deeply connected, so they don't throw fits. So you never hear about it. <laughs> 
The other thing is, is the importance of, you know, and this is very web culture versus a lot of other media culture, the importance of having people behind a lot of those practices, right? Jonathan Abrams was the person behind it, regardless of the fact that it was Friendster, the company, and everybody blamed him and loved him or hated him because of his actions. The same is true for a character named Tom Anderson, the first friend that you have on MySpace. And one of the funniest stories that came about with all of this has to do with, I don't know if you've ever seen a MySpace profile, which you know, comes back to 1990s GeoCities, right? It's got the blink tag and animated sound, loud, all of that. It's all a hack. And the reason it was a hack is that MySpace, for those geeks in the room, just, just think about the fact that this is running, was running on cold fusion. And you can sort of start to cringe and be like, oh my god, I can't believe it was functioning. Um, but in the earliest days, the forms that came up, they didn't do any of the normal scrapes that you would do to make certain that there was you know, HTML code in the, in the forms. And uh, a young girl, college girl, figured out that she could put bold in, in italics tags, HTML tags, into the forms. And she was kind of like, oh, that's cool. And they were like, oh, what else can we do? Oh, look, we can use the font tag, and we can change the color of our fonts. Hmm. And quickly, a small group of people figured out, wow, you could put any HTML code, any JavaScript code, any CSS code, and you could completely mod out all of these profiles, really making them your own in the ways that you see fit. The assumption was that MySpace didn't notice that this was happening, and frankly, that's bullshit. They noticed within 24 hours that this stuff started popping up. And the site was like, oh my god, security hole, stop it, stop it, stop it. And Tom was kind of like, let's kind of see where this goes. This ought to be fun. Right? And they actually sat and tracked it. And they, did, they ran these scripts to see every new piece of code that came up. And rather than flipping out and saying, this wasn't what we intended, they decided to watch it. And in watching it, they made a couple of other very interesting moves. First, Tom acknowledged it. And he put a message out on his, on his profile, which goes out to everybody, and said, it's really cool that you're doing that. Please just you know, be careful. Right? There's, some, there's some code that shouldn't be in there. And they went around and rather than killing off the behavior when bad stuff started, because it wasn't long until people, again, this opportunism, people started using it to fish, meaning that they would you know, ask for name and pa password for different sites, and people, of course, would put that in, and they would use it to, to do all sorts of malicious activities. Or they would use it to you know, scrape your PayPal account. Um, so they went and they started killing off specific kinds of code, specific things, anything that might look like porn, might look like scamming. Right? But they didn't kill off the practice. But they also made a very, a very interesting second decision within this. They could have gone and implemented features so that you could actually make a profile functionally, right? like actually do it with some sort of elegance. But they didn't because there was an entire culture of copy-paste culture going on. And the copy-paste culture is the fact that you have a, something called Thomas's <coughs> MySpace editor, which was the first one that came out. And it was, you go to his page, if you search MySpace layouts, and you go to this page and you're like, oh, um, if you want to you know, modify your page, this is what you do. And right, like started teaching people like, basic literacy. Here's how you make HTML. Here's how you do CSS. But then they you know, figured out people don't actually want to learn all of this, but at least would give them the, the material. Just like, OK, modify it this way. Look, I'll give you the code and copy it and paste it in there. Thousands and thousands of sites are now up trying to help people figure out how to copy and paste. Right? And they haven't killed it off because there's a culture that forms around the ability to mod things that is not necessarily best treated by actually making it easier and more efficient. Half the time, is you, you want these hurdles to learn it. And so you go to a MySpace profile and you're like, oh, obviously the site must permit and make it easy to do all of this. Anything but the truth. It is very difficult to figure out how to mod a, a MySpace profile. 
but an entire generation through word of mouth has figured out how to do it and support each other in doing so. And that kind of fan practice that is, again, constantly supported and, and communicated by the site itself becomes a very powerful symbiotic relationship around fandom. Um, and again, you know, they're going and they're still killing off the behavior that's problematic, but trying to make decisions around that about like what, what will make be helpful and not. And I guess that's where I, I don't know, if you want to go to, a, if you're on, those of you on the internet, go to Alexa, which track, is a web trafficking site, and look at the curve for YouTube. And this is a really, really fascinating curve. Because what happened is, is that YouTube, when it originally popped up, had a lot of porn on it. And MySpace thought that it was a porn site, so they banned it because they were, again, trying to clean this up. Fans reacted terribly to this. They were like, oh my god, you can't do this. Um, what happened was is you saw it literally like this little curve and they banned it, right? And then they accepted it again, but not only did they accept it, they announced it, right? They were like, oh my gosh, we're so sorry. We realize you guys are doing good things with YouTube. We didn't realize, please don't put porn up on your site, <laughs> right? And that's really the creation of YouTube is these moments when people could announce it and let you know that it was okay, right? And MySpace still sits there going, we created YouTube. What were we thinking? We had the code to do this ourselves. Right? But these moments that you have of, of when and where you accept behavior and when you stop it. Right? They decided that they weren't going to stop it because they didn't realize what it was at first. So they supported it because they realized it was fan culture. And in supporting that fan culture, you create an entire environment that's just like, yay, you love us. But it's a really hardcore balance. And I think that's, that's one of the trickiest things, especially when you're dealing with youth. It's how to make that balance work. And, and it's true that, I mean, community <laughs> isn't always good, you know, it is good, but um, for example, real life, there are real life bullies and there are bullies online. Um, you know, if you go to, you know, if you go play Virtual Magic Kingdom or games that are geared towards children, there are bullies that will corner other players and not allow them to leave a corner of this, of a particular room. And can do that for days, you know, the person has to log out and start back in. Yeah, that's a bullying behavior that exists outside of the game uh, and inside of the game. You know, MySpace can become an incredibly stressful experience. Um, for young kids, as soon as it becomes real, as soon as their real friends get involved, and then not only how many friends do you have, but do you have the right friends? You know, so, so community, I, I feel like because, you know, I love new media and I love um, the internet space, and I love fan communities, that it's easy to forget that sometimes there can be really negative uh, experiences there as well. Uh, just chime in one other thing, if I may, on the positive experiences that can also occur, though, through community. We, um, jumping to our Batman franchise uh, when Christopher Nolan was in the process of pre-production on the first Batman Begins movie, um, the, the script was very, very sensitive um, and not allowed to be read by nearly anyone, including many, many people at the studio, um, because Chris believed so strongly that the plot reveal at the end of the movie was something that if it got out before people experienced it in theaters, it would change the experience negatively. Um, a copy of the script was leaked via the production in the UK, and we found out through a series of relationships that someone had the complete script, was able to show, uh, someone online was able to prove to us and a couple um, interme intermediary allies that they actually had the full script. Um, and there was a collective effort by the fans online to make sure that script wasn't exposed. Um, that's pretty unprecedented, particularly with something like Batman, where there is such an investment in that notion of, you know, I saw it first and look at what I've got and the me, me, me thing. But the group collective mentality of 
we respect Christopher Nolan, we respect DC Comics, we want this experience to be great for everyone, so we're gonna self-edit and censor ourselves, um, and the efforts in the community to make sure no one violated that was fascinating to me and to the studio, and believe me, we all took a lot of deep breaths when we <laughs> realized that's what was happening. We didn't know, ultimately, till the movie came out, if at some point that full script would end up online, but it, it didn't. Very interesting. So to build on what, what Diane just said, a lot of the, 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 res the restrictions we're talking about are designed to prevent fans from depreciating or devaluing or damaging a franchise. Yet we also, and, and let's stipulate that you've got some great examples there of how that could happen and why, why some of that's needed. Fan, fans also appreciate properties, not just in the emotional sense that they, that they like them, but in the economic sense they generate cultural and economic value around properties, that their liking of the property is in fact a source of wor worth. So I wonder if we could speak to what ways you see fans increasing the value of properties that you, that you work on. Um, they are the single biggest reason that the properties are valuable, in my estimation. I mean, it is, um, whenever you have anyone who's invested in a property, that's an advantage over something that's, I mean, someone used the word earlier, Joshua, I think, commodity, commodity, like that in the content creation business. Um, and, but in fairness, maybe some of what we create is a commodity until the fans see that something special in it and own it. And so I, you know, it's funny as the question was posed to us ahead of this session, it was actually, do you, how do you see fans adding value and how do you see them perhaps um, uh, taking away value culturally and economically? I was really hard pressed, despite our previous conversation, to think of how fans can devalue a property. Despite everything we just described, I don't actually see any of that as a devaluation. I think when you have people invested enough in a property to talk about it, to spread it, to embrace new forms of it, to critique new forms of it, um, you have a momentum that any media company or producer should be thrilled to have. Um, and the, the economic value chain is, is pretty obvious. I mean, the transmedia discussion that went on yesterday is, is the best way of illustrating that. And many parts of transmedia haven't even yet been monetized or figured out how we're going to monetize them. But the real value is the cultural value. I, I'm, I, I don't know how many people in this room are Harry Potter fans. Can we raise a hand if you? <laughs> yeah. So pretty good percentage, and we don't have any children in the room. So um, <laughs> it is, uh, I, you know, we'll never see anything like Harry Potter again in our lifetime. I, I just believe that. I, I mean, we should be so lucky. But that is not, um, that's a combination of a beautifully executed piece of art. But... The, the thing that Warner Brothers recognized um, in, back in 2000 when we first started engaging with it, when the first book had not yet really even hit its success um, in a meaningful way was, this is a property that is so owned by fans that if we do anything to suggest that we are taking ownership of it, Warner Brothers is taking ownership of it, and redefining it, we'll be dead in the water. So we, we actually established internally guidelines um, for ourselves and for our business partners that would remind us of the things that would allow us to sustain Harry Potter for the long term. We knew there were going to be seven books, uh, assuming there were no natural disasters. We knew there were going to be seven movies, assuming we didn't ruin the relationship with Joe Rowling. Um, and so we put a plan in place that said you know, really basic things. I, I would sit, stand in front of 
several hundred of our consumer products licensees and, and do trivia contests on the book to try to get them engaged. And you know, they'd laugh and maybe they'd get a signed poster or something. But the point of going through that exercise was to remind them that, the, that you can't work on Harry Potter if you don't know the books. And similarly, if you have a strategic question or issue in how you are going to manage or, I hate to use the word, but exploit Harry Potter in one of our businesses, if you have any question about whether you're doing the right thing or not, go back to the books. That's the heart of it. Um, Joe Rowling is the heart of it. And, and we need to bear that in mind. As long as we did that, as long as we were sure we could point back to that, then no matter what decision we made, fans would know that authenticity was there. We trusted that that would happen. And it, it took a dialogue. It wasn't, believe me, the skepticism was great. And um, we had to make some very conscious decisions, including financial trade-offs of promotional partners and a lot of the things you do around big movies. We said, you know what? We're not going to do it on Potter. It doesn't need it. We don't need it. And the fans will feel like we're turning it into something Hollywood. And that's not good for us. So we made that choice, and it paid out in spades. And it's still paying out now, and we're just about to go into the fifth movie. So um, I, I think that that recognizing the value of fans and actually being prepared as a produ producing company to make decisions that recognize that ownership is the key to success. Now, I think it is difficult to think of an example where fans don't enhance a brand um, by acknowledging it. In fact. You know, sometimes you'll go to a site. Uh, I don't, were you guys familiar with Stephen Colbert? Um, got everyone going to the Hungarian website, yeah. which, by the way, is written mm -hmm. in Hungarian. And um, I think it started. Somebody submitted Chuck Norris as a name for a bridge. There was sort of a, you could submit any name you wanted to. And of course, Stephen Colbert wanted it to be the Stephen Colbert uh, bridge. And uh, as I was going through this list of hundreds of submissions, at least half of them by that point were still in Hungarian, but there were a lot of others. Um, I was like, please, please let Cartoon Network be represented. Please let Cartoon Network be represented. Because you just wanted to be on that list, to be culturally relevant. Of course we were, which was great. Uh, and of course I was SpongeBob, which wasn't as great. But um, <laughs> you know, it, it, there, there's a relevance there. And, and if you're kind of not on the list, you feel you know, a little left out. Um, but I think what's interesting to me is that fans know their power. And they know the influence that they have. So for example, you know, Toonami Jetstream gave us the opportunity to bring back Megas XLR. How many people are familiar with the show? It's a really niche, small show. It's big, big robots, monster truck, you know, alien invasion. It's a pretty cool show. Um, but it had trouble finding a home on the network because it was a little older, maybe. We're not really sure. It was hard to, you know, put into a very specific category. When we were going to put it online, the uh, you know, fan message boards really uh, showed up with a lot of comments of people saying, we have to reward Cartoon Network for this so that they'll keep going, that they'll continue to you know, show Megas. Maybe they'll bring it back into production. Same thing happened with Family Guy. You know, that, and that was a really conscious kind of effort to say thank you. Because so often when fans contact you, it's usually, just as all of us, when we feel really compelled to contact someone, it's, thank you for that. I want more. Or um, here's all of the reasons why you've destroyed something that I love. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's running into complaints. So to get unabashed, highly positive feedback, we understand what fans are doing. They're asking for more and, uh, and try to give that to them. And I guess for me, looking at spaces that fans congregate instead of necessarily brands that they congregate around, mm -hmm. some of the, like one of the things that, that is required to keep a lot of these sites alive, for better or worse, is ads. Right? And if you think about the economy around advertisement, um, the, 
this is where you get into challenges of having uh, multiple audiences present, right? If some fans want to take it to a level of slash, it's going to alienate younger fans and it's going to alienate um, advertisers who want to sort of engage with it, which makes it harder for the sites to maintain it, makes it harder for the sites to actually want to allow for the diversity of audience. The other difficulty, of course, is that if you have a diversity of fandom in one space and some of it is highly problematic for a variety of reasons, it can often spiral out of control and kill off the entire fandom space instead of just you know, rather than figuring out a, a balancing of that. And one of the, like, I love tech companies because they don't often see the parallels of what their decisions are compared to every everyday space. So one of my favorites is um, the tendency to go for separate but equal policies, right? So you, you, you will create adult spaces and kids spaces, right? Assuming that by creating separate spaces that'll actually solve all your problems. Um, or the other favorite thing, of course, is that if you've got hardcore xenophobia, you create the Korean space and the American space, another really beautiful um, way of engaging with this. And part of it has to do with the, you know, what, what is the economy around that, that keeps fandom able to do its thing, right? And this is going to, especially as things get beyond text, right? Text was relatively easy to keep up on any site on the web for a relatively modest amount of money. Put images up put audio up, put video up, and see how you can sustain it and what the costs are, the economies around it. And you've got, you've got tough questions to come into being because most fans can't you know, fund their own work online, which is where you have YouTube allowing for a lot of um, video fandom to function because you know, a friend of mine put up um, a, a thing called Star Lords, which I don't know if anybody's in the room has seen it, but in his first week of putting it up there, you know, managed to deck out over $1,000 in, in bandwidth costs. I was like, oh God, what do I do about this? Right, so you have these different issues that come into play when, when consumption becomes a process. And so if you have to then rely on commercial monies to support it, you have difficulties um, for diversity of it. Um, the other thing is, is that fans don't always approve of other fans' activities, and that, and that can result in viciousness. Which is a really interesting question for any you know any of the brands is to what degree do they actually engage with some of the viciousness between fans? What are, what are the costs to them of that kind of stuff that happens? Um, what are the costs to the entire fan community? Because not all fans have the best of intentions <laughs> um, uh, at heart. Um, and so how do you how do you balance those kinds of collectivities and those very anarchistic um, practices that emerge in this? And that's where I think that some of the difficulties come into some of the, the social plays that happen in the economies around it, not necessarily simply the, the controls of the brands themselves. So what role do fans play in the marketing strategy around media properties with which they're involved? Uh, what efforts are you in your different contexts making to court fans as grassroots viral marketers? And some fans have observed that there may be a difference in the way they get treated when a show is little known, cult, niche, trying to survive, trying to launch in the market, and the ways they get treated when the, sh when the property becomes a mainstream success. And I'm wondering if those of you in the media production side feel that's a fair ass assessment of the way they, the companies relate to fans right now, or if you see, see some, if there's a legitimate reason to treat fans differently in those two contexts. Um, I'm not sure that is an entirely fair assessment. Uh, we, and I'm going to ask my colleague Paul Levitz can yell out from the audience here because he's as familiar, if not more so, than I with this, but um, our recent Batman and Superman movies each had uh, creators, filmmakers, Christopher Nolan and Brian Singer, 
respectively. Which order did I say that? But Superman, Brian Singer, Christopher Nolan, Batman, um, each of whom were very engaged with the, both the property and their own fan bases and respected them again. And so there was a, a dialogue that occurred, and Superman's the, the easier example where Brian Singer actually did a series of blogs, much like Peter Jackson did during King Kong, where he, and Brian Singer's a bit of an <laughs> exhibitionist, so he'd show you anything all the way through the course of production, but he, he had this dialogue going on with fans um, that was really fantastic. And it showed, up to a certain extent it was controlled, but not from the standpoint of we want to control from a marketing standpoint what we're doing. In fact, that's why Brian was the orchestrator of the blogs rather than the marketing team. He determined what was going in them. And if he was controlling the content of them, it was only, again, with an eye toward what might impact negatively the, the experience in theaters, which was his ultimate goal. But he was very inclusive with fans, very, um, uh, I think, very aware of both the sensitivities and um, the positive feedback, but not uh, completely malleable when it came to them. And Paul told the story yesterday about the, the costume colors for Superman. You, you just have to have a creator who has the vision, and as, as Paul said, that the creative confidence to see that vision through <coughs> Catwoman. Um, but it, it was uh, not, with, in the case of Brian Singer, he had that and he had the respect going in of the, of the fan base, as did Christopher Nolan. I don't even remember who directed Catwoman. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> you don't need to yell it out. But, uh, <laughs> so I, I think even Sorry, in... Sure that's right. <laughs> Pilaf, I think, might have been his single name. Um, but uh, th that actually, all kidding aside, is an interesting example where Catwoman um, being sort of a smaller but certainly moderate-sized film by Warner Brothers standards was almost dead upon arrival when that cat suit got out there. Now, this is a totally my personal opinion. It's not reflective of the studio overall. But I think we did our, as ourselves a disservice uh, in two regards with Catwoman. One is that, the f most importantly, the film wasn't very good. And so the, ca the cat suit just became kind of a representation of a of a story that under-delivered for fans and just for general consumers. But, but some of us at the studio became so paralyzed with fear by the negative reaction to the catsuit that the catsuit was then pulled back and not shown anywhere, including the EA video game, where the, it, you know, the point was to talk to young men who wanted to see her playing the video game in that cat suit, but we couldn't put it out there. We wouldn't let EA put it out there to a certain extent for fear of the snowball effect of the negative fan feedback. So, you know, you just have to have, I think, a fairly tough constitution when you go into entertainment production these days, particularly with properties that have a pre-existing fan base. Know what your vision is and be prepared to hear that dialogue, but by all means, I don't think you can pull back, and you certainly can't orchestrate it. That's, that's why I even hesitate to, there are, the answer to your question in my mind, Henry, is that um, absolutely there are marketing strategies and programs and benefits to, to working with fans, but if they are driven by marketing, 
they're going to probably fail. They have to come, and this was talked about quite a bit yesterday, they have to come from the authenticity of the content itself, of the creator itself, him, him or herself. Um, and, and they have to feel as though they're appropriate. If you try to force stuff on people, they're just, I mean, they're just gonna take control of it and throw it right back in your face. Mm -hmm. And I would say, actually, the, the smaller the property and the more niche it is, the more fans feel an investment in it. And so it requires as much sensitivity, if not more. You know, I think because we're primarily a kids network, uh, we don't have a lot of opportunities to feed, um, to directly feed kind of viral marketing or, or put a lot of assets out there that, that fans can use. Um, but it is interesting to me that it continues to survive. So I, I mentioned before, we have basically a massively single player game um, called uh, Big Fat Awesome House Party um, that is a perpetual game. It's basically an exploration game where you've got this huge house and we keep adding levels. Well, we made a conscious decision when we made the game to not include a map because it's an exploration game. It's, you know, isn't really necessary. Plus, no one had ever mapped out the rooms inside of Foster's home because it's infinite and, you know, we kind of didn't want to be held to it <laughs> a little bit uh, in case, you know, later on something was critical to the story. But what ended up happening within, I would say, days of launching the um, game is that fans went out and created their own levels and really beautiful, detailed maps, more than I think it would have ever occurred to us to do. Um, and there were fans who um, will find a venue. If you don't provide it, they create a venue to talk about which level they'd gotten on mini games and so on. And that was something that was very cool for us. But again, because you know, we're sort of hamstrung a little bit in terms of what we can directly communicate, it was something that we were sort of experiencing as observers and not necessarily as contributors to. Although I have to say, in that way, it's, it's more legitimate. You know, if it's fan-generated, fan-produced, it's authentic. And um, I, we haven't done a lot where we tried to see things. Except, I will tell you this anecdote, which occurred to me a little while ago where um, we did a summer campaign. Did you guys see the big red billboards everywhere? And they would have stuff like I pooed it or um, my, my boogers itch, I think was one. Um, and it was sort of iconic characters with catchphrases. And it generated a lot of interest. And one of the things that uh, the marketing department did is like, well, you know, nobody's posted this on um, YouTube yet. We'll just put our little promos out on YouTube. So they put it out on YouTube. Uh, the legal department completely separate, sends cease and desist letters and pulls it down <laughs> off of YouTube. The marketing department was like, oh, come on. So, you know, it was, it's a very funny balance, right? Um, <laughs> so, you know, in that way, you know, putting content out there consciously and saying, here, share this, enjoy this, is, is something that, that we do want to do. But you have to communicate very well internally. <laughs> <laughs> so it was interesting. In the earliest days of Friendster, people were putting up brands all over the place for their own enjoyment, right? I mentioned Ali G, um, but tons of television characters, like, you, and not just television. I mean, you had Homer Simpson, you had Angelina Jolie, you had Jesus with a baseball cap. You had all sorts of iconic characters that people felt were really, really interesting. These were often what became called fakesters and were eventually killed in what was called a fakester genocide, where the company itself went around trying to kill off any profile that didn't look real, which motivated then a bunch of users to create fraudulent profiles of the site's creator himself. Um, but the, so they went and they killed off all these profiles, and then they decided to sell the rights for um, companies to create profiles of fake characters, right? So the first was um, all the characters from the TV show, or the movie Anchorman. Um, and they sold the rights for doing that. And the fans were like, what the hell? Right? Like, you wouldn't let us do this. Why are you doing it? 
We're, not, we're going to ignore you. Um, and so that was the sort of way that friends approached it. MySpace never stopped it, right? They were like, oh, create anything you want, right? Which quickly um, encouraged um, fan, fans had a really funny thing because they, they would create all sorts of characters, right? If your best friend refused to join the site, then you would create a site for them, right? So it, it wasn't just you know, celebrity style fans, but like all sorts of local fans as well. If you wanted your favorite band on there and the band, you know, their label hadn't put up a profile, you made one for them until the label flipped out, realized they had a profile and decided to create their own. Um, the interesting thing in terms of a, a marketing decision within MySpace is that there was a, a feature that was desperately craved. So um, on social network sites, you have the opportunity not just to collect friends or you know, people that you are in many ways fans of because they're not necessarily your friends in everyday space, but you display these friends um, on the profile itself. And the profiles can't afford to display 9,000 people uh, per, you know, on a single page. So they, they limit the number of uh, profiles that are shown and connected to an individual themselves. On Friendster, it was always done by the most recently logged in. Well, MySpace had created the most dramatic way possible for teenagers to negotiate best and bestest and bestest, bestest friends by letting you choose which one, you know, eight people that would represent you that you could put on your page, right? This was the top eight feature, which created, seriously, like, think about middle school and having to, to really tell who you're friends with and who you're not, and imagine how well this played out. Um, the users of MySpace desperately wanted the ability to have top 16, top 24, top infinite, right? And so they, it was the number one request. They got requests every day about this feature. People had figured out how to hack it, but it wasn't quite right, and there were problems with it. MySpace sold this feature. They sold it to X-Men. And they made a deal, and they did a nice big promo on the front page. If you make friends with X-Men, you can have top 24, right? X-Men, needs to say, got millions of friends within 24 hours, right? Uh, because everybody's like, wee, I will befriend X-Men. It's just another one of my 9,000 friends, and voila, I get... Um, I get my top, my top feature. Um, the interesting thing, of course, is that by being friends with somebody on a site like MySpace, you receive all of their bulletins. And this is where MySpace becomes a marketing device for people because companies quickly realize that if you can make, if you can convince a user to be friends with you, that whenever you post a message to your bulletin, they'll receive it. Right? So you can, you can post all sorts of advertising material, any information um, to, them as, to them as friends. Um, the first hundred companies who figured this out in MySpace were golden, right? And most of them were really small niche companies, right? Like specialty hand ma handbag makers, right? Um, now everything has their MySpace profile, right? Like Coca-Cola has a MySpace profile. I'm sure that both of you have MySpace profiles that are used as a marketing tool that, of course, now everybody ignores. Um, because there's also there's this level to which when... When, when fans are doing it because it's fun and it's interesting and because it's a way of like reaching out and actually consuming all of the stuff that they find very fascinating and using it to produce identity, they're happy. When they feel as though they're being manipulated in the system, they're really not thrilled with it. And if you look at, if you look at uh, what's going on right now with MySpace, MySpace is actually in a pretty precarious position because there are... If you, if you remember that um, about half the population is under 18 and the majority of the rest are under 35, um, you have to deal with the fact that there are populations who hold power over most of the users in MySpace. And so there's two kind of tensions going on. Those who hold power over them, which are you know, parents, bosses, um, teachers, police officers, 
And those who have a desire to manipulate um, and otherwise abuse their users, namely marketers and pedophiles, um, those two populations <laughs> being on together on MySpace are, uh, it's interesting to watch the users get really pissed off about both of them because both are problematic on a lot of levels. So the reason why MySpace is in a precarious position is not actually because of um, people necessarily cleanly getting bored, but the fact that these the two largest of those, parents and marketers, are actually flooding the system with their goals of how the system should be used, either through legislation or through um, marketing material, to the point where it's become, it doesn't feel f like user generated at all anymore. It feels as though it's user manipulated. Let's bring this to a global context. Uh, media companies have historically wanted to control fairly tightly which countries the films were released with in what order when the show flowed from one national context to another. Uh, fandom's global. And once something's out there in any part of the world, it's now potentially accessible legal, illegally, if not legally, by fans in other parts of the world. Doctor Who is an example of a show that launched on BBC, what, a year before it launched on Sci-Fi Network, but in Age of BitTor and in Amazon UK and, you know, fan discussion boards. It, you know, the, the first-time experience of American fans were largely compromised, and they found ways of getting access to that material much more, much more quickly. So I'm wondering how that's changing the way media producers are thinking about their strategies, uh, for better or for worse. So how is fandom's global reach impacting the decisions you guys are making? Um, I, I think it certainly is an issue that we are talking about a lot at Warner Brothers, um, although it's generally within the context of piracy issues and the, um, the burden upon our infrastructure and resources to actually be able to put a, a, a piece of product, a movie, whatever it is, out day and date worldwide. It's a very, very difficult thing to do, and it's not always um, the right thing to do from the standpoint of either monetization or fan and consumer experience. I mean, holidays in Europe as far uh, differ from in the US and Asia and so forth. So um, I, I think I'm not sure I have a, a good answer other than it is definitely something that we're grappling with. It hits even earlier in the cycle in terms of marketing implications. If you debut a trailer in the US, you're essentially debuting it globally. And so there are factors that have to be weighed in. And that, that I mean, it's an interesting thing, it's sort of a side uh, issue that it brings up, which is that media companies are going to be forced, or they're going to die, to integrate and to really look at these things from a global perspective, but also acknowledging the segmentation and where these various mediums are, are changing the way we, we do business. Um, but it hasn't, to this point in time, it hasn't changed the model other than acknowledging it's going to happen and therefore what are the implications. I also think it's interesting that what it's, what it's causing us as media companies to do is to, uh, again, better appreciate the consumers to not um, not assume that consumers are as stupid as we may once have. I hate to put it in those terms, but you know, there is a, six months ago or maybe a year ago, if you had said to our home video group that the broadcast premiere of a 
um, a new direct-to-DVD product was going to happen, they would say that's going to cannibalize sales, don't do it, absolutely not. Well, then high school musical shows that actually give them a 30-day broadcast window and you see a huge spike in DVD sales and all of a sudden the whole model's turned upside down. Mm -hmm. it, it, that, to me, is just because it doesn't, it, it's not to say that every audience segment is going to be receptive to watching an individual piece of content that many times. You have to know your audience, but I certainly think we have to really work hard to not underappreciate how sophisticated consumers are now, how receptive they are to seeing things in different mediums, that they may want to see something on the web when it first comes out so they can say they saw it, but that doesn't mean they're not also going to want to see it in the form it was originally created for, whether that's in a theater or on a television screen, so that they can experience it in its optimal, excuse me, kind of quality. So that's a whole lot of nothing to your answer, but <laughs> some observations. Um, yes, long ago, I think one of the biggest challenges Cartoon Network had is um, the decision not to show the cow and chicken in India, because it would be incredibly offensive there. You know, there were some, you know, global uh, introduction of shows meant, you know, uh, it was sort of a cultural issue, and now it's more of a, a technology issue. Um, you know, episodes of Naruto will appear in Japan, and within two hours, there is a fan subtitled version out there somewhere. But the fan who, who either creates that content or finds it is still very likely to want to own the DVD or to, to watch it as soon as possible. You know, we introduced um, The Prince of Tennis um, in English for the first time, but I assume that there are copies circulating now of The Prince of Tennis with English subtitles that have probably been around for a year. Um, so we just kind of don't have that assumption. I would say our big experiment with, you know, that in general, our window of releasing shows um, in the US and in the UK and other places is really um, shrunk down, and it sort of comes down to an issue of logistics more than trying to manipulate windows of exclusivity. Uh, our big experiment was the animated micro-series uh, Star Wars Clone Wars, which was released worldwide fairly simultaneously, which had some serious production uh, excitement associated with it, um, and uh, worked very well, but getting all of those groups in different time zones to be able to work together, and you know, we were building this incredibly complicated Flash player website that had to be exported to all of these different regions. It was uh, intensely complicated. But like I said, it's more a matter of logistics and not a matter of, of trying to manipulate those windows. Final thing I'll say is I don't know how many people there are out there who haven't seen the American version of The Office yet. They're like, oh, I, The Office, yeah, I haven't gotten to that one yet. I'm just going to wait and get the DVDs. I've already seen the, the English version. And it's like, is it the same? I'm like, oh, how have you not been watching it? And then I realized that you know, we're just on our own timetables now. We'll get around to it eventually, but, you know, it, even when it's available, it doesn't mean we'll necessarily go after it, even if we know it's reputable, great content. I think one of the, the challenges, I think, for, for the big media productions, it's obvious that they have to think about how to deal with a global market, but there's an assumption with technology that if you put something out there, it will be global instantaneously. And I think that that's sort of the flip side of a lot of this. Um, and one of the challenges that a lot of uh, media producers that are doing online are having is what is the reach of their content? How far will it go? And the fact that people can put so much out there on you know, YouTube or on you know, uh, any number of these sites does not mean it will actually reach everybody out there. And you know, this is sort of the blogger thing, right? You're writing for nine million people when in fact you have an audience of six. Um, and how do you actually deal with that balance of like your perceived or desired global goals and the reality of the very local? Um, and the, 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 the other component of that is that 
information that has stickiness flows, right? And it will flow through networks. And what you realize is that even though we talk about a global world, the majority of networks are deeply, deeply, deeply entwined with um, a very local reality. You know, even on a site like, you know, MySpace, which has at this point 120 plus million accounts, um, does not mean that, you know, you're dealing with putting something up there and it will fly through all of MySpace and everybody will consume it, right? There are certain people that have a lot more power in getting information out, right? Tom puts something up on the top of MySpace, it will bring down that site within five minutes. Guaranteed, it brought down NPR in less than that. I was amazed without even putting a link in. Um, you just mention certain kind of things and it's just like dead, uh, dead sites. But you know, most people when they put something up on MySpace, like you know, the, the next burgeoning band who's really excited and then gets two fans, they're really frustrated because they think that they can go global. And so I think that there's this really interesting question about how much content is being produced, how far can it reach, and who, is, who are actually the agents of information flow. Um, of course, the marketers want to figure out ways of actually capitalizing on those agents. But also, you know, people want to figure out how they can consume the stuff that's of interest to them. And things do have that viral growth. And that viral growth is very powerful. But it's also very slow for most things, right? There are certain, certain players that, that actually help that along, right? Like Boing Boing mentioning you know, some sort of fan consumer um, site will, will speed it along really, really fast. Um, Tom mentioning something will speed it along really, really fast. But that's you know very small amount of what actually gets out there and, and you know, what kind of fan material is there. Um, and that's where you have to, the other component of a lot of these technologies is to what degree are people just surfing? You know, one of the really important things about YouTube you know, in terms of when I've been um, interviewing college kids, is just the tags, right? The tags are the dumbest thing. They actually tend to have no relevance whatsoever. But as, you know, one 19-year-old said to me, they're a pot smoker's dream. You can just sit there clicking, and you get content over and over and over again. Right, and there's something really fascinating about that, about like when is surfing, that kind, what kind of surfing goes on and how does surfing support this? Right? A, lot of, a lot of search, if you look at um, teenagers and college kids, they're surfing random things just to see what will come up. Right? What, what cool thing can they find? That's certainly how they're using a lot of these um, sites, is that they're, they're clicking on links randomly just to see where they'll get. Um, and that becomes a really powerful thing, but one that's very difficult to harness. Right? Who knows where they'll end up on these random surfing uh, expeditions? So we're about ready to open it up to questions. Is, are there mics out there already? Or, uh, so uh, over here. All right, over there and then over here. Great. My name is Eric Fleischer. World Wrestling Wait, Entertainment. Uh, uh, sorry, I'll start again. My name is Eric Fleischer with World Wrestling Entertainment. I think one of the concerns <laughs> that we as a company have with the idea of a fan community is that it, a lot of people have spoken about the idea of relinquishing control of your product, of your brand. Um, and that can be positive when people use it in a positive way, but it can be extremely negative. I, there are tons of MySpace profiles out there of you know, 
our brand and, and our superstars that are being done in a truly negative way. They're actually you know, creating fake appearances. They're actually having conversations with other fans. And while I would like to say that you know, fans are intelligent enough to be able to distinguish between one or the other, they're not always. So they might be thinking that they're talking to John Cena and that they, if they go to the local Toys R Us, they're gonna find that. And they can run themselves into a lot of danger. What sort of controls uh, have been put in place in the communities that you know about to to keep a handle on those things. I mean, yes, those people who create these fake profiles are tremendous fans of the product. We want to encourage that kind of fan, um, but we want to be able to have a level of control of it. Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, The controls, I mean, the, MySpace is actually putting out a ton of controls, which is actually pissing off most fans pretty quickly um, because they're, they're making it so that the labels have controls over the band sites, and that's where they're really starting with us from. Um, this is a problem, you know, since the beginning of the web is, you know, what is real, what is not, how much literacy do you have, you know, what are the balances of it? Um, and I don't, I mean, from my point of view, like, there's a level of education that goes on about, like, what are you actually consuming? Is it, is it, um, is it something that's, that's fan created? Is it something that's, um, that's actually the person you think you're talking to? Um, so, for example, for me, this, this actually goes way back. I created the first Ana DeFranco um, fan site way too, 10 years ago, long time ago. Um, and I got letters every day from people who thought I was Ana DeFranco, which was, you know, pretty funny. And I was really humored from it until I started getting detailed letters from people who had gone through uh, various levels of um, rape, domestic abuse, and child abuse. And I was in a really hardcore conundrum because it's like I wasn't really prepared to deal with that. And to, to be a 18-year-old kid and have you know, minors talk, telling me the details of how their parents were abusing them just because the person that I was respecting as a, um, that I was a fan of a musician who happened to talk about a lot of abuse. And it, you know, there was a challenge there in terms of what kind of control goes on, and which is one of the reasons that I was able to work with you know, the actual um, righteous babe, the people that owned them. And that was where one of, the, one of the best lessons that I had during that was that there's an opportunity, rather than flipping out when your fans are doing things, to work with them to redirect information and to figure out a balance with it. Um, and for a lot of the, f the, the most active fans, what's going on on MySpace for, for like bands and whatnot, is that these are bands that can't afford managers, bands that can't afford this, but have active fan, fan bases and can't afford to spend the time doing it. And they've started actually engaging with the company and allowing the fan-created profiles to trump the, the label-created ones, which has been a really powerful thing. In terms of your own situation for you know, what kind of control you want, I don't know that this is necessarily bad. Um, and I think that this is, this is where, I guess maybe you guys can speak to this far better, but when people create complicated profiles, they start a conversation. And yeah, you've got 12-year-olds who can't tell the difference, um, sure, but you have a lot of 12-year-olds who have a very detailed understanding of what's going on. There's a great study that came out that I just saw hot off the presses yesterday about the fact that these, these young people, they're assumed to not be able to tell reality online, you know, reality from fiction. The fact is that they're doing so quite fine, mm -hmm. um, but they're having a field day with it. They're enjoying these, you know, pretending that they are Harry Potter. It's just fun. Uh, the, uh, what I would say is I, I agree with everything Dana said, but the, the other thought that um, plays off it a little bit is rather than thinking about it as how do you control it, look for the opportunity to tap into the fan base to help get the word out. So what we, we have wonderful fan sites 
some of whom I think are in the room, but you know, Leaky Cauldron and MuggleNet, and places that we know have such an extensive reach to fans who are who have legit, not legitimate, have uh, app appropriate. Uh, there's no good word for it, but the kind of interest that we want to reinforce. And we sometimes enlist their help in getting word out, as does Joe Rowling, about if there's someone who's selling phony autographs or something's occurring on eBay they don't like. You know, there's the, rather than controlling, use that very network to get word out about, you know, go and respectfully, you know, because to Dana's point, some people may actually get the distinction and are sort of enjoying the fun of it. But the, uh, in the meantime, for those who you think might be being victimized, you can actually give them the alert that these people aren't real, proceed at your own risk kind of thing, or whatever the appropriate language is. I just want to clarify with that, because I think there's something very important here. When fans are engaged, they don't want negative appropriations, like really problematic appropriations either. They don't want people to be making money off of it. They get very upset by, mm -hmm. like the fans themselves get upset by uh, people being really manipulative of it. And if you have a really active fan community that you're supporting and engaging with, they'll do a lot of that legwork for you. I mean, like, I've, like, within the Ani DeFranco community, it's all fans that are stopping the, the illegal eBay bootlegging <laughs> and the, like, the, the, the really terrible stuff that's been sold, you know, like, sold that's problematic because they love her. They really want her to, to be able to do what she's doing and make a living doing so. And so that's, that's the power that you have when you, when you activate that base because they, they, they do a lot of that education for you and they do a lot of the stopping of the terrible manipulations. Well, I, I, am I the only one here who finds it a little ironic that the question about the line between fake and real yeah. comes from a representative <laughs> of professional wrestling? Uh, I mean, I don't want you to pick on, pick on it, but it's clearly part of the business of sports entertainment to play with that line just a little bit. And there's been a fair amount of work that suggests, uh, by Sam Ford, among others in our, in our group, that shows that the performance of wrestlers in the audience has been absolutely helpful in generating the suspension of disbelief the audience is engaged with. It's part of the audience's desire to participate that creates an environment where they want to both be in the game, in on the know, you know, not, not a shill, but you know, mm -hmm. someone who's very knowledgeable about that. And that seems to be what would feed that, particularly in the context of professional wrestling. I understand the problems there, but also understand that it comes out of a context of uh, what wrestling does and the way it relates to its audience. It's very distinctively tied to what the wrestling fan culture. And this was not included in my bio, but uh, one of my personal claims to fame is that in 1996, I created the first WCW Nitro Girls website, uh, which was a lot of fun to work on, and uh, I, I really do enjoy professional wrestling, so. <laughs> okay, over here. Okay, now there I am. For our generation, we're very resistant to commercialization. The generation behind us has grown up with so much more of it. So that for us, where we're sort of on the lookout between fan community and marketing, I'm wondering if the two of you who do market with youth, if you have to worry about that concern, or if the youth are just so immersed in advertising that you don't have to worry so much about crossing that line. 
Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess I'm um, conflicted in, in exactly how to answer this. I would say that in general, you know, because we're a kid's site, we have so many restrictions around how we advertise, and we have to be very clear about what is an advertisement versus what is not. And we go through all of these protocols and rituals with full awareness that kids are incredibly savvy consumers who are brilliant at ignoring or taking in whatever marketing um, piece that, that they might want to. Um, what I love about fans is the first question that we get when we launch a new product is, what's the catch? You know, that's a real, that's an interesting statement because you know, there's, this is free content, it's full-length episodes, that's fantastic, what do you want from me? And uh, it's like, well, um, you know, it kind of palms start to sweat a little bit. It's like, well, it's um, advertising supported. Like, oh, great, it's not a subscription or anything because that I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't go for that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's just advertising. Oh, super, yeah. It's just a part of, you know, the, the cost of, of being entertained for free on the Internet. And, um, you know, it, it's kind of a great place for us to be in where we can, know how savvy they are and still take those extra precautions. I'd just add to that on a more kind of philosophical le level that I don't think you can ever take for granted younger people's um, screening process and sophistication about advertising. So even if they are coming up with a, a more immersed experience when it comes to advertising messages, that doesn't mean they're not going to be every bit as savvy about rejecting or accepting certain messages. And, and my hope is um, that because there's so much fragmentation and because of user-generated content and everything we've been talking about in the last day and a half, that there will be some sort of greater onus on the advertiser creators to up the bar a little to do things that are more innovative to get the message across. I mean, I don't know how you survive in this landscape without doing that, but that would be good for all of us. So um, hopefully that's what this younger generation is going to demand. Um, and that's the key word for me is that they can demand it and they can reject it, whereas perhaps our generation, or maybe I'm even a generation above you, um, didn't have that ability. We could go off and whine about it or we could talk kind of academically about it, but there's not really much we could do to reject it, and they can now, so it's great. And I think even with advertising, content is king. If you're advertising a video game that kids are interested in getting a first look at, they're going to watch it again. You know, have no problem that it's in a commercial format, but if it's something they're not interested in, and I can't think of a single advertiser that would be uninteresting to our audience uh, right now. But, um, <laughs> no, of course not. Um, but if it's not interesting, then they're going to reject it wholesale, whether it's put in an entertaining format or not. And I guess I have three short points. That one, one, I've had the, the fortune of actually sitting in um, when MySpace tries to run its um, what advertisements do you pay attention to marketing things with teens. And it's really funny because they're so used to it that they blank most of it out and they couldn't remember a single ad for these marketers and I was just mm -hmm. laughing the whole way through it because they're just, you know, they're like, you don't make relevant ads to us. We're not opposed to ads, we're used to them, but they're not relevant. I know there are car ads out there somewhere, but I don't pay attention because I can't buy a car. Right, so there's these really interesting <laughs> conversations about like, to what degree is this supposed to be relevant? How do you actually deal with relevancy? The second thing is, um, if you haven't taken a look at Rever, which is where Lonely Girl 15 went to, I really recommend it. It's a really interesting switch in the advertisement planning, um, which is that, uh, when, that you get paid to share the videos if somebody clicks on that ad. Right? So if you, put, if you take, and you take um, Lonely Girl 15 and you put it up on your um, uh, live journal, right? and some, one of your friends clicks on the ad at the end of the, um, the Lonely Girl 15 video, 
then you get a small amount of that money, right? Which is interesting because it's motivating people to not just share content, but to share content and encourage ad clicking. That's gonna be a really interesting paradigm that has huge question marks for me. And the third small point is that we're talking American. Um, advertising is undoubtedly the economy of a lot of this stuff in the US. It is not global. And, or globally, and that's a really complicated thing for a lot of global companies who are trying to get their content out worldwide because advertising doesn't make mu as much sense in, say, China. And you really see this play out on the social network sites, which are not actually ad-supported, but they're micropayment-supported. So, for example, um, on a site like um, uh, QQ, you can buy a donkey to shit on your friend's profile, and then they have to pay to clean it up. Right? What? Like, <laughs> right? But th this is this is common practice. Is these little like five cent here, five cent there, silly, ridiculous, uh, absurd kind of activities that that are in the you know the, the economic measurements there that. I, I have to imagine, I, I'm still waiting for them to be implemented here. I really want to see the like 14 year old boy and all of us come out <laughs> and be like, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to do with this. <laughs> you know you're first. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> so there's this interesting question to what are a lot of the paradigms that we're understanding around marketing and around advertising because we all live here or we live, you know, and, and, and frankly, the UK and Australia are following the US lead in terms of, of advertising structures. But China, Korea, mm -mm, totally different world. Um, and I think that as we talk globally, we have to think about the effects of that because the advertising there just is not effective for entirely different reasons. OK. Yes, we're, we're yeah. Back in the pre-internet dinosaur age of fandoms of things, the distinction that used to mark being a fan was being active. It wasn't whether or not you liked whatever the thing was, comic books, science fiction, but whether you did something with that liking. And that could be the equivalent of the matrix chart that we saw the other day, and somehow finding a way to circulate that, or attending a convention, and becoming, rather than just showing up, having gone out of your way to do it, and sitting on panels, things like that. That seems to be altered into a seamless continuum now where just identifying yourself as a fan of something, this is I, using an identity nature of it, is enough now. I'm a fan because I say I like this and I list it on my profile or whatever. Are there any defined sort of subcategories now to fan as you watch it that we're coming up with as language in the jargon for the ones who are the active participants who are doing something with their ownership of it, whether it's building a site or enriching the experience for others versus the folks who are fans just, they like being part of the mix and they're showing up for hang, hanging out with the other people who care about what they are. Is there, have we? Have we found any language for this or any different spots that seems to stabilize that? I think it's interesting that, that you bring up being around other people because for me that's what makes a fan is somebody who's seeking out others who share that interest. You know, anybody who's watched the most recent episode of Project Runway and run around the office going, did anybody watch last night? I have to talk about this right now. And, you know, 
has sort of experienced that. And we have not come up with any new vocabulary. I'd be curious if uh, anybody else has. We haven't either, but I, I have to say it just to differ a little bit on it, and it's a, a tiny bit of a downer to bring it up, but I was thinking about it last night about whether I would be able to address this. One of the things that I've learned with Harry Potter is how deeply personal the connection to the property can be, whether many, many people choose to interact with others through the experience. But for example, um, we, whenever one of the new movies is about to come out, we inevitably get my office, somehow they all get routed over to my office, we get calls from families, parents or teachers of children who have three to six weeks to live, who want nothing more than to see the Harry Potter movie. And who, you know, so we, we do whatever we need to. We rally whatever it is. We put my assistant on a plane who will fly to Canada and drive five hours and take a DVD to a home, sit there with a child who will watch this movie. And uh, it gets very, very emotional. These, uh, many of these children have passed away a week or two later. Our, our offices are still in touch with their families. They, you know, these kids take expressions of, the, of Harry Potter into their graves with them. That's how personal it is. So it, I, I, I don't disagree at all with the notion of the question. It goes back to what I said at the beginning of the panel, which is that the appreciation for the degrees of which fandom can express itself is something that I think we all need to really work to understand. And that the, the activity with which someone expresses that can take a lot of different forms. It can be, you know, for a kid going in the backyard and creating a wand out of a stick rather than going to Target and buying, buying the Warner Brothers one, which, by the way, happens, <laughs> I'm glad, happens a lot. Um, and, or the ones who go create elaborate fan sites or the ones who throw fan conventions. I mean, there, are, there is such a spectrum. And, the most important thing is it's so personal. It's so th there's something in these stories, much the way you described yesterday, Paul, with the, the comic book characters. There's something that people connect with in Harry Potter, who that individual is, how he interacts with his friends, how he overcomes evil, how he's empowered, how authority figures help him or don't help him, all that. And that just comes out in all sorts of different ways. And that's the fascinating part of it to me. So I would love to figure out language that helps express those variations, and yet there may be so many of them, I don't know if you ever could. And I guess as, as theoreticians, we can, we can come up with language, but in practice, actually, a lot of these categories become very, very dangerous. And I, I've written some, a snarky essay called Autistic Social Software, which is um, <laughs> meant to talk about how when you work with children with autism, you teach them very functional ways of sociality, where you're like, you know, the concept of, of friendship has to be very cleanly articulated and people have to learn how to negotiate the social world that way. Well, all of our software treats all of us as though we have autism, such that you, are you my friend, yes or no, becomes a really obvious catchphrase that's like, what? Um, and at the same time, people start to understand the nuances and the complexities of what their idea of a true fan is, given whatever position they're in, um, in relationship to fandom. And that becomes a really, really key thing is, is that like each individual gets to have the nuanced understanding of what that means to them without being told that they have to fit into a category or not. Um, and the, the, what makes the internet and why the internet is complicated, what you're talking about, has to do with the other end of that, which is around signaling, the cost of signaling. And I encourage 
and still waiting upstairs is a woman named Judith Donath who uh, has a book one day coming out on signaling, which will be really fantastic. And her early chapters are amazing because she's really interested in the idea of that online, I can say that I'm the biggest fan in the world, right? And, and, and what does it take to prove it? And one of the things that I think is really interesting is the way people have learned ways or language of challenging people on their statements, which are different than the physical world. So like for her, her comparison, she talks about, you know, if I come in with big bulging muscles and say that I'm gonna kick your ass, right, you're gonna be like running the other way, right? But if I come in with a gold gym t-shirt and say the same thing, you're gonna laugh at me because you look at me and realize <laughs> that's really funny. Um, <laughs> and so the question is, is online, everything becomes articulated, everything becomes performative. Um, and this is this interesting thing. What does it take, you know, it's no longer the currency of like, just being able to get the really rare album or the really rare thing that makes it when, when things don't have that kind of rarity anymore. It becomes then a, a question of like asking, you know, details of the Harry Potter series, do you really know, right? And these games you play with people to see if they pick up your references. Um, so the, but people work these out, but then they themselves hold a mental model of the complexity of that, that notion of fandom that doesn't necessarily need to be categorized in mainstream discourse, even if we theoreticians find value out of doing so. Okay, over here. Yeah. Is the mic not working? Is it on? Oh, yeah. there we go. Um, so I'm Julie Russo. I'm a grad student at Brown University, and these questions are very near and dear to my heart, so thank you. Um, there's been a lot of discussion in this panel of the mainstreaming and monetization of fan activity and also um, some of the challenges to that process. So I'm wondering if you can talk more about some of these counter tendencies. Um, and I think there are possibly two ways to look at that. One is sort of the underlying structural tensions of the sort of late capitalist system. Um, that is, is this always a happy marriage between the kind of legal and economically authorized corporate ownership and fan sort of sense of ownership that you've been talking about, Diane? Or can you see some limit point on the horizon where those different agencies are going to come into open conflict if they're not sort of already in conflict? Um, or second, on the side of sort of contradictory philosophies and the way these um, are practiced. That is, um, in fandom, there's a commitment to the community basis of fan activity, which is sometimes talked about as a gift economy. Um, so is that potentially in tension with a sort of capitalist model? Um, and also, there's been some mention of um, Slash, and so I'm also wondering if the elements of fandom that are queer, not only in the sort of sense of sexuality, but also in the sense of a queer approach to texts themselves as promiscuous and open to appropriation, um, if those sorts of approaches are potentially less easily reincorporated into a sort of corporate economy. That was a big question. <laughs> <laughs> that was three big questions, wasn't it, I think? Dana, why don't you start this one? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, I mean, for me, when I look at it, one of the things that I'm really excited, I, I am the most excited creature about the fact that Google bought YouTube. And the reason why is that we are very used to um, challenges around IP and copyright and content and reappropriation being these individual fans fighting these huge corporations. I am so excited about the battles for the next year because 
we are looking at Google uh, being a big Goliath with its own economic interests, fighting off a lot of other Goliaths, right? And we're going to see a lot of working out of these issues for once, not just happening on, a, on an itsy-bitsy little level. And I, and I say big issues because, it's, you know, if you look at the, the acquisition of YouTube, it's got two main issues. One is the copyright issue, right? Like, who owns this content that's being appropriated? Who owns the music that, you know, teenagers are putting, making their own music videos to? And, and often, you know, there's an assumption that if, you know, a kid makes a really sexy music video to it, that um, this is trying to compete with Britney Spears. And I'm like, no, no, no. Really, they're not trying to do that. So you have that kind of issue. You also have the outright net neutrality issue, um, which for those who aren't familiar, you know, what does it mean that um, the people who control your broadband coming into your home uh, decide that they don't like that um, content like YouTube is competing with content that they're putting out through the, the cable stations that they make a lot of money through ads on. So I look at this, and I think that there's a lot of legal interesting issues that normally would be um, fought out on a much smaller scale. And I think that you're going to see 2007, 2008 being mass fighting out of Goliath. That, I think, is really interesting in terms of an opportunity. In terms of the querying of it, of a lot of, of, a lot of um, different practices, I think that that's where there's a lot of complexity about, that we go back to at the beginning, where you know, who is the audience? What is the space? What does it mean that the that we don't have traditional walls. Like, you know, when I was engaged in fandom as a kid, like, you know, you had zines being passed around and you had to be in the know to, you know, find out about the queer zines and it was totally fine. And the walls were, you know, conveniently maintained through, you know, um, nondescript, uh, mag or nondescript um, uh, brown um, covers in the mail when you got things. And so as a result, it became networked based, not necessarily spatial, but sort of closed. What means that like, it's great that anybody can access this stuff online, but there are huge complications to that in terms of the kinds of um, practices that can happen. Because what we, what we could get away with in terms of cutting and pasting and, and mocking up our own versions of these things is not necessarily what can be uh, gotten away with in a super public environment. I'll let you guys deal with the other questions. Well, you know, I have alluded to uh, fans being generally comfortable with advertising as a model for getting free content, free games, free video, um, and being able to either accept or reject um, that uh, those individual products that are that are being advertised. Um, one thing I would say in terms of the rights issue is is there's really no substitute for frank dialogue and sort of a you know a sense of um, being very open. So for example, on adultswim.com, which is the late night adult programming block on Cartoon Network, um, on adultswim.com they had huge banner ads that said, we want you to do work for us, and then transitioned, and we're willing to do absolutely nothing for it, uh, or give you absolutely nothing for it. So kind of putting out there, we love you, we appreciate you, please do send in content, but we are actually cannot give you anything except acknowledgement for what you send in, and to just be very upfront about that. Um, and so it is. I mean, I think it goes back to the, to the DC Comics um, comment yesterday that you either have security in place to look at submissions or you have to completely ignore them. And it, it's a frustrating spot to be in. Um, um, on the, the IP side, I, I would also just add to reinforce uh, what Molly and Dana said. Um, it's, it's so, I mean, the music industry obviously was the the precursor to what the rest of entertainment's going to be facing. I, you know, I'm a bit of an optimist, so I'd like to think that 
with the same mentality Steve Jobs and Apple brought to give them a legal alternative and they will largely use it. Um, the, the, the same will hold true as we move through the process of IP um, in the future. I just, uh, I think the key is that studios, media, producers, whatever you want to describe them, need to, need to acknowledge it's coming in some form. We, 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 it doesn't mean hands up, you know, it's all going to, the user generated or however we want to term it is all going to turn everything upside down and, and consumers will win. It's not that simple and I think that ultimately fans, again as the sort of core behind all of this, so respect the creators and the creations that have been um, created <laughs> that, they, uh, <laughs> that they're willing to a certain extent to acknowledge that so long as there are options to be able to engage in it. And I, you know, the, that moves quickly to the, the slash fiction or the, the, I actually haven't heard the term queering before. I, I, don't, I don't really know what to say on that point other than what I've said already in the panel, which is I don't, I, I feel like it is a legitimate form of expression, but as a rights holder and someone who's got to look out for the broadest possible audience, that there are degrees to which we can acknowledge it and should, and other than that, you know, it's, it's expression. It goes to the question I think we've been asked about, you know, what happens when this whole um, age pulls back the curtain on what's been going on for, for years and years. It's, uh, I, don't, I don't know that it should change much other than let those people who want to connect do so more freely and um, but not necessarily have it roll over into other audiences who aren't looking for it. On a slight, oh. Oh, go ahead. I was just on a slight tangent, but I think it's important to, to put this in context, is that the, these networked publics, these internet networked publics that you're seeing have four properties that are unique to mediated environments that are not necessarily um, exist in um, unmediated environments that we're often used to discussing with that. And that's persistence, searchability, replicability, and invisible audiences. Right, stuff sticks around, you can, you can search for it, which means that you can find things it, it, often in ways you didn't mean for them to be available. You can replicate them, which means that like a conversation that you have with your, in private with your friends on IM gets copied and pasted into a blog and voila, it's out for the conversation space. It also means that you can replicate a lot of the, you know, this low key, you know, little jokey um, uh, videos that you meant for you and your friends to, to laugh about the way that you were, um, so you know, playing with, uh, a lightsaber and all of a sudden it's replicated in a lot of other places. Um, and finally, uh, invisible audiences, you don't know who's seeing what you're saying, what you're doing. These properties, uh, while they existed in television, they existed in radio and whatnot, are really a part of everybody's life uh, in these network publics, which means that um, it, it fully complicates the way that individuals are using and consuming and it complicates the relationship between fan practices and you know the industries that uh, it's connected to. Because many ways fandom couldn't be easily searched for, for example, and now you just you throw in your name into, into Technorati, your brand into a search engine, and all of a sudden you can see all kinds of ways that it's being used and so can everybody else. Right? And so one of, the, one of the things that it feels particularly in the industry is to remember that these four properties are complicated things and to think about how you're interacting with these properties both as fans and as producers of content, because they're not going away. Like, you can't actually build the walls now that we've torn them all down. 
around these properties. And we're also dealing with a generation who is grow who's growing up with that being a part of everyday life that only celebrities of um, the older generations ever had to deal with. So that's really complicating a lot of these processes. Okay, there's a question in the back, and I'll go down. Hi. Um, hi. My name's Amber. I work at an interactive ad agency in Brooklyn. I'm an account planner. Um, we deal mostly with entertainment clients, and we do tons of stuff with MySpace and other social networking sites. Um, and we try to make sure everything we put out there is really engaging for the fans and give something back to them and is really cool. But you know, you'll go and you'll go on MySpace and you'll see that Walmart has a MySpace page and all these other things that are just sort of plopped there. And I've been sort of thinking, isn't MySpace sort of partially responsible for curating the environment just a little bit? Because, you know, it's sort of their party. And once they start letting everyone in, they're going to lose people on it. And it just won't be cool anymore. So it's sort of, it's sort of like a trifecta of responsibility between the agencies to make sure what they're doing is really engaging and cool between clients to not be like, oh, we want to be on MySpace and we want a viral video when these things just don't make sense for everything. And between MySpace, who, you know, it's their environment and while users have definitely taken it to another level, you know, in order to keep people there, they have to maintain a little bit of exclusivity. What do you think about that? Imagine 118, pe or 118 million people showing up at Harvard Square and the police trying to cope with it. Right? One of the difficulties you have of this site is we're talking mass, fast growth that nobody is able to actually pay attention to all that's happening. Right? Tom Anderson, the site's founder, is on the site 20 hours a day. He has no life. He does nothing but surf the site. That doesn't mean he can pay attention to even a fraction of what occurs. They're, one of the things that they're trying to do, I mean, they have, at this point, over two-thirds of their um, staff, is, which is well over you know, 150, 200 people at this point, is dedicated to just surfing the site looking for problematic content. What they're going after, first and foremost, is illegal behavior, right? outright illegal stuff. <laughs> for a lot of uh, political reasons, they're going at, trying to find the um, uh, predators. The interesting thing is, is that most of their predator sweeps at this point are finding cops, and so they keep kicking off cops instead of predators. Um, which I find very entertaining. Um, they're going after um, hate speech and they're going after, they're going after copyright because they have to because of all of these pressure points. There's a degree to, when we're dealing with public you know, life, there's a degree to which it can be maintained and supported by you know, policing and there's a degree to which it just can't be. I agree with you that it would be, you know, in a nice world, they have to figure out how to balance that kind of, fan, you know, like the kind of manipulation. But they're just trying to keep things together on some basic level. And I don't know that they're going to be able to manage all of the complicated things. And I do think that they have, it's a huge risk. I think that they are definitely, definitely in risk territory. Like, I can't sit here and say they're going to be around with the kind of popularity that they have now, even five years from now. Like, I can't tell you that. They, of course, they, of course, would love to tell you that, and they're going to keep telling you that. But it's, it's not that simple and it's because of a lot of this stuff. It's because this, it is so trashy and, and I don't mean in, in terms of naked pictures trashy. I mean it in terms of you know, just the amount of stuff that's dumped there by all of these different relevant social groups who have different desires for how to use the material. Um, and the fact that there's no cost to creating a profile, right? Like if you create a profile and five people connect to it, there's no cost compared to like creating a profile that bazillions of people connect to. 
And that, that imbalance and that difficulty makes it, like, there's no reason for fans to run around and trash it either, right? They just don't care. And that's, that's typically their approach to a lot, of, a lot of the trash that's out there, is you just start to ignore it because you can't pay attention to everything that's on there as a fan either. And so most of the you know, users of MySpace have no idea the wide variety of stuff that goes on there, right? Like, I, like I love, and, and this has to do with also the way that you actually consume sites like this, right? When non-participants typically come into MySpace and start searching. Most users do absolutely no searching, right? What they do is they log into their profile, they look at their friends' pages, they go through their friends' pages. When they are bored, and that is literally the explanation you will get over and over again, when they are bored, they start surfing the network, right? And so if they run into you know, a property, the reason they run into that property is because they're surfing it. The other way that they're running into it is because um, of the direct marketing behaviors. And the direct marketing is more of what you're seeing them try to stop because that's actually killing off practice, right? People are not wanting to engage with their messaging systems when they go in and all it has in there is junk mail from Walmart and everybody else. Um, so as a result, they just don't, they don't read it. The, th the third way um, that, that um, is kind of, it's much more insidious is the whole phishing scheme. So one of the main uses of phishing have been that a group of, a group of uh, hackers, spammers, whatever you want to call them, have figured out how to get the accounts of a ton of different people on the site and they have made deals with a bunch of companies, not your big name brands like Walmart, but your sort of lower tier brands. And so they go in and write bulletin advertisements um, of all of these companies by using all of the accounts they've hacked into. Right? And so they're trying, that, that is the number one thing they're trying to stop because they know that it's disruptive on a, so many levels <laughs> in terms of practice. But they're, they are literally just trying to keep up and the technology, like, this is this interesting challenge, right? Friendster responded to every hack that it had where it lost control by going hyper-control. Like, the first three years of it, all they did was take away features, right? MySpace has been responding by, like, okay, this is definitely an art, like, crazy, and we don't know how to take care of it, and we don't know what to do, but rather than crushing down on the things that most people are using for good reason, we're just going to try to put Band-Aids all over the place, but it's really difficult. And I don't know that there's a really good solution. Oh, I'm sorry. I, one more in the back, and then we'll get down to the sky. Okay. Ms. Cuse. Yes, in the back. Hi. Uh, Leora Kornfeld from Ubiquity Interactive in Vancouver, um, which is in a different country, and that brings me to my question. Yesterday I was at the, I guess it's the MIT bookstore, and they had the Helio phone, which we don't have in Canada, and it's the one that MySpace has branded. Um, and it made me think about, well, the way they were marketing it, they had some line about, because you're an addict on MySpace, then you'll want to take this with you. And what I'm wondering about is, to what extent, if at all, um, especially um, the, I'll say corporate, but Cartoon Network and Network People and Dana as well, what you've been thinking about in terms of the migration of these behaviors from a web environment to a mobile environment, how much do people want to participate in fan cultures when they're on the go? Um, well, I'll start going to what I think is the crux of the question, which is what you ended with there. How much do they want? I mean, that's really the question, correct me if I'm wrong, is how, how much do they want? I mean, I think fans want to interact um, with properties they're engaged with everywhere you can organically and authentically give them the experience. Uh, you know, it's, I guess it's the, um, 
the challenge, well, it was discussed quite a bit yesterday, actually, in the user-generated content discussion about, you know, it's not, when, when you're moving into these different mediums, it's hopefully not just about slapping a label on a form of content that's been shrunk down to exist on a mobile phone, that, that there is, you know, in the case of Harry Potter, maybe we're asking questions, uh, trivia questions, or we're giving facts as you lead up to the last book, or we're doing something that is more suited to a mobile phone environment than trying to do a game experience on a mobile phone, which is, um, we've struggled with trying to figure out how to do that in a way that's of the quality level that fans expect and that we feel like we need to strive for. So uh, that's, a, that's a roundabout way of saying, I absolutely believe that if you find the right content to serve up in the various mediums that fans will absorb as much of that as they are inclined to do. Um, and it's not to say everyone's on every different medium either. I mean, there's, you know, but, but I certainly think the opportunity is there if you're thoughtful about what the right content is for the various mediums. And I, and I would say that too, that I think mobile phone in particular becomes an extension of your personality in so many ways from the ringtone that you choose, the accessories you put on it, to your usage of it. You know, are you the kind of person who ducks out of a room when you get a phone call or, you know, there are lots of other options. Um, so, you know, one thing that I think we do take careful pride in is um, creating content specific to whatever medium it is. So rather than taking a catchphrase from a show, we'll do original voiceover recording <coughs> specific to your telephone. For example, hey, you know, pick up the phone, um, you know, from, you know, Master Shake, for example, um, as opposed to just picking up any line of pre-recorded um, VO. And you also get some really surprising uh, types of applications when you get voice actors into a room and say, okay, well, if your phone's ringing, what do you want Master Shake to say? Um, go with some really funny stuff. So um, that's been a big focus of what we do. I, I think sort of the, 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 the experience that I picture in the future is that with Cartoon Network, you would have an immersive online experience that you could check in on and maintain via your mobile phone or your PSP or whatever it is that you have with you so that you can kind of check in on it and maybe extend it, but you're not duplicating that experience. So two parts to, to it. First, for the reference to Helio, um, for those who have search engines in front of them, uh, search for Dan V. Helio, which is um, an essay I wrote about how Helio made the biggest mistake in its launch possible. They overpriced, they um, made a lot of things impossible for the audience you'd think they were attracting. All of their ads make you think that they're going after teenagers, but they, they're priced over $400 with a minimum of $85 a month as a, as a billing fee. It doesn't work, and as a result, their audience, I think that they've sold something like 10,000 units. It's really depressing, actually, for the amount of ads they have out there. That aside, um, in the United States, we have a huge, huge, huge problem around mobile, and that has to do with the carriers. Um, and my apologies to those carriers that are in the room. Um, but the carriers have a complete control over everything that goes out on their platform. Um, they're starting to see some level of JavaScripting and, and or, I mean, Java-based apps that'll allow you at least to get to the web. But a web experience is an entirely different experience than a, a local app experience. The result is that nobody can actually put innovative social media out on the phone, which is really harming the ability to do everything social, including fandom, um, on the phone. There is a lot of desire to do the phone, and you see stuff happening outside of the US. Um, for those who are interested in mobile, I strongly encourage you to read uh, Mimi Ito um, and uh, Matsuda's uh, new book, um, Portable Pedestrian, and I forget the third P. You remember it? Personal. Personal, Personal, thank you. And they're in some order that I also never remember. 
Um, it's a great book looking at a lot of practices uh, in Japan on the mobile phone, including fandom. And a lot of uh, Mimi's work is directly about fandom. Um, uh, and now, and with, with her, her older work being around mobile, so they, they very much connect. Um, and part of how they connect has to do with the way that um, young people, by and large, have repurposed the phone to, to meet their needs and to do a lot of organic things through texting and whatnot. In the United States, we are obscenely far behind anybody else in the world with regard to mobile phone. And it has to do with a lot of, there, there are a lot of different factors having to do with the lack of mobility that young people have in this country, the contracts, the requirements of credit cards, the fact that most parents don't buy phone plans that have text messaging. And if they do, they want the, their kids to only text message them. Like a lot of different factors that are making it difficult for even for organic things to happen. My hope is that yes, one day we will see it um, emerge. Frankly, I think we're going to see it emerge out of Korea and China first. Um, and you're already starting to see a lot of signs about that kind of thing. Because um, there is a lot, anything that goes through the government in China is allowed on the phones. And it's amazing what you can get through that way, uh, which is actually much more effective to get things through than to get them through T-Mobile. Um, the only other thing I, I would encourage everyone to pay attention to is what goes on with Google as Google starts to look at you know, mobile phone OS opportunities. Um, I think that that's going to be an interesting opportunity for apps to build out. Because I think that you need the neutrality of the mobile phone for the apps to actually encourage the kind of behavior. I think people want to do it. I think they want to do it really, really badly. I think they would have a field day doing it if it didn't cost so much and if it wasn't so damn difficult. And I think those, those barriers are an unfortunate aspect of what's gone on with the control of the technology industry. And one of the things that I'm very thankful for the history of the internet and very cranky about the possibility that it will be pissed away in the neutrality wars. Because the opportunity to, to really repurpose these things and do what you want is, is central to fandom. Okay. Down here. <clears throat> Hi, I'm Andrew Borg, and I run a, an entertainment company, Highbeam Entertainment. And uh, we're focused on immersive visuals and for live performance. In the process of doing that, um, we've tapped into uh, a sort of a worldwide community of uh, content creators. So I kind of want to turn the telescope around for a minute and look in the other end. Because we've been talking primarily about fandom. Um, and we've been talking also through the, the lens of, of intermediaries. Um, but we're, we're now working with a, an, a company that's communitizing creators, content creators. And so I have two questions. One is, is community and fandom part of the same continuum, or are they fundamentally different? And if so, could you describe what the differences are? And secondly, for someone trying to create a community for content creators to, to interact with end users directly, not through intermediaries, are there things that you would recommend that they, lessons to be learned from fandom that should instruct the community side of things? So is there a difference, and are the lessons to be learned? Well, I, I would say for animation, the community of creators is already fairly small and overlapping. You know, people work on, um, you know, they'll work on a Nickelodeon show this week, and they'll work on a Cartoon Network show next week, and they'll know each other. Um, and creators tend to kind of keep tabs on each other. It's a fairly small community. So for me, anything that exists in the real world it's very simple to duplicate in, online as long as you've got something of, of value for people to reference. Um, I'm sure you could speak well to the community. Well, the, the thing that's really interesting to me, community is probably one of the 
most problematic words in all of social media. So as I, putting, trying to narrow it down and really pinpoint it is just going to get me into trouble. Um, but you see entire, you know, entire groups of people that come together, that converse, that engage, that participate, and that you know, when when systems support those networks from from collecting, there's a there's a deep value. One of the things that you see in terms of fandom online is that often the creators of the content had very little access to their fans prior to a lot of these sites, particularly you know like the um, the musicians and the the comedians and whatnot. What was so impressive to see happen on sites like MySpace is that, and you heard, you know, when we did interviews with, with bands, we heard this over and over and over again. It was just like, oh, I have fans and I can talk to them. Ooh. Right? And they'll sit there and they'll spend hours and hours writing and actually engaging with the community of fans because they had never had a situation where they could do so. And for a lot of the smaller content creators, that becomes a very powerful opportunity. And in, in a way, they actually start to to, to frame the community, which is also very different than, than a lot of what we've talked about in some of these larger scale fandom practices. Um, and they've also started to leverage this. So for example, one of the things that bands have used MySpace to do is like, look, I have this many fans. You should give me this gig. You should, you should sign me to this label. Look, there will be people that buy it. And all in favor of buying say yes, yes. Right? And like, you do these back and forth in, in a way that's just really, really exciting and energizing for um, both the content creators and the fans. And one of the reasons why this has worked on MySpace is because there's a symbiotic relationship between bands and fans. Right? The bands are getting this opportunity of saying, look how many fans we have, of like rallying them to come to a gig, rallying them to fight for a cause, doing whatever they want. The fans are getting something out of it because they're able to use that friendship to display the, you know, their relationship to particular cultural positions, their, you know, their relationship to a community. And that symbiotic relationship and the fact that that symbiotic relationship is formed is really, really powerful. And one of the things that I see for community sites is about forming those kinds of relationships between content and content creators and you know, the fans themselves. Um, and that's where network practices that don't, that don't rely on physicality have been so effective at that. Okay, one more hand in the back. Yes. Um, I'm Lynn Licardo. I'm a playwright. I also write about soap opera. And I actually want to end this by bringing it back to something Henry said in his opening remarks <coughs> excuse me, about the spectrum of fans, from the, the viewer to the fan to the deeply engaged um, <coughs> fanatic, for lack of a better word. I think that's a fluid um, process that people can move through and back and forth. And, and this is more, because I write about soaps, I'm more interested in this from you know, sort of a continuing level. Ha and I don't know if I'm actually even asking this of the right people. Henry might be the right person. Has anybody looked at the triggers that get somebody from being a casual viewer to a, f a committed fan, to a deeply committed fan, and how they can go back and forth and does or do the media companies, the, the Warner Brothers, the Cardinal, have any interest in understanding that and any potential uses of that understanding if it does in fact exist? I am interested in it if Henry can tell us what the triggers are. That's <laughs> a... <laughs> I'm not sure I can tell you what the triggers are. There's no science to it. A number of scholars have tried to either look at moments where those transitions take place and understand on a specific case study basis the change that's taking place. There are a few frameworks out there people have tried to get at. 
but I don't think we have, um, we, it's hard to measure emotional intensity. I mean, if we had a good thermometer, we could stick under the thumb, under the, the tongues of uh, large numbers of fans. Maybe we could get a, a read on emotional intensity, but it's really tricky. And after, I think there was 20 years of academic scholarship of fan, fan culture, I'm not sure we're a lot closer to answering the trigger point question than we were before. I, I, I'm, it's an art, not a science, I think, at the end of the day. I mean, there's a bibliography on it I can give to any of you after. I'm not sure I can pull it out of my head. On, on the fly right now, but there, there, are, there are definitely some good, some good pieces that have dealt with it. And I guess one of the things that's funny for me to be back in Bartos in the Media Lab is uh, one of the, the devices we were given years ago here when we were doing demos for um, people that were coming in to look at the lab is we, we, all of, the, all of um, the companies were given these galvactivators, which, which measured galvactic response. And so that whenever we were doing presentations, we'd sit there watching their hands rise up and down, and like, were we actually getting what they, what they wanted going? And there was, <laughs> this lab is fantastic for doing those kinds of experiments because one of the things that, that you question is, what, most of what, how we can measure it is based on the traces that people leave. And most of those traces require active performance rather than emotional response. The question that is coming is, it's like, to what, how, what kind of traces exist out there? And this is, this is the different angle that people are starting to look at it, which is how do you actually start to, to surface up those traces? What are, the, um, what are the consequences of surfacing up those traces? So for anybody who knows about Facebook, they created a feature called Newsfeed, um, which, which basically took every action you did on the entire site and not just surfaced it up to let you know it, but all your friends too. So you logged in and you were like, oh my god, so-and-so joined a threesome group. Did I need to know that? Whoa. Uh, oh my gosh, so-and-so broke up. Hmm, what else is going on? And every little detail. And so right now those experiments are really raw and awkward, but I think that they're going to be applicable to what you're talking about as people get through the, the disaster experiments and start to see when, there's, when there can be positive opportunities of surfacing up traces and when surfacing up traces are a disastrous idea. Yeah, I, I have to say, when I said putting something on your, your tongue, I really didn't mean that literally. That there, are, that, <laughs> that there are a lot of people out there who claim they can read biological signs or scan the brain and find the part of the brain that fandom comes from and so forth. I call those people mind readers uh, because mm -hmm. I think they're stretching well beyond anything we know about brain science at the present time. Well, and there's a lot of superstition. It's the question that. of when that, that, how you interpret that data. Right, which, which is the interesting, this was the galvactic response thing, where it didn't, whatever was triggering it was fun to play with. And I think that's when I see a lot of those experiments. I don't think that they necessarily mean what you think they do, but they're great for actually giving some sort of feedback that make you want to play with it. And I think that, that process of playing with it is where the experiments are going. And I think that the same is true for a lot of the traces. Just because somebody joined a threesome group doesn't necessarily mean that signals what you think it means. Right, and so I think that's where there's these complications of just because things are moving towards a question of what signaling, what, how you can actually surface these traces, doesn't mean the interpretation is going to go well at all. Okay. On this, on this note, let me thank the panelists for what's been a very lively discussion. I should add this morning when I was thanking people that I really should have thought, thanked every panelist who's participated here, who've come here on their own company's money, who, and so in a sense, every company up here is a sponsor of 
this conference and have contributed greatly to making this event a success on an affordable level and have enabled us to make it open to you free at, at, and, and uh, so forth. Two sets of announcements. Uh, the first one has to do with food. I'm sure it's a subject close to your heart at this point in the day. There will be a Middle Eastern truck uh, outside this building uh, since th this is a ghost town on the weekends. For some reason, the MIT population believes that no MIT student eats between Friday afternoon and Monday morning. Uh, but there is actually food. We've, we've provided uh, a truck to be here to sell you some, a pretty good Middle Eastern lunch. The food court and legals are still open if you went that direction yesterday and like to pursue it. Now, I said yesterday that the art I read an article last week that says we're now leaving the era of Web 2.0, entering the era of Web 3.0. And this seems like an appropriate moment in this conference to mark this transition. By, by Web 2.0, they mean social networks. By Web 3.0, they mean immersive worlds. So I thought as we went out to lunch, since we'll be dealing with immersive worlds after lunch, that we could have a countdown like New Year's Eve <laughs> to the ending the era of Web 2.0 and beginning the era of Web 3.0, <laughs> allowing you all to feel like you've been here in an historic moment where we've seen the transition from one era to another. So I'm hoping everyone will join with me now. So 10. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Happy Web 3.0! Have a good lunch.